T-minus 10, 9, 8, 7, and we have main engine start, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, and liftoff. Blast off into the potosphere with DGP nominal. All systems remain nominal. 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 Hello everybody and welcome to TGP Nominal, your monthly look at all things science fact and science fiction. With me as always, I've got the one and only John Berger. How you doing, sir? Doing alright, and of course there's one and only because the world couldn't handle two of me. <laughs> so what's been happening in uh, your neck of the woods? Uh, nothing. <laughs> well, I mean, there are some... Uh, issues regarding a certain flag over here, but that, that's a political topic that I really just want to stay away yeah. from. Yeah. <laughs> I know what you're saying on, on, on that one. Yeah. Um, so, um, before we go on with the show, we would like to congratulate uh, honorary crew member Ryan Kobrick for winning an International Astronautical Federation Young Space Leaders Award for his work with Yuri's Night. The Young Space Leaders Recognition Program is targeted at exceptional students and young professionals aged between 21 and 35 who demonstrate leadership in their academic or early careers. So yeah, well done uh, Ryan you really deserve it absolutely recently i've been to a comic con uh, which was the first of its kind actually it's the the high wickham comic con in in buckinghamshire in the uk and um as I say, it's the first one of its kind, and I got to get a pass that gave me access to all areas, got to talk to the guests that they had there, the signers. And um, so I've got some recordings of uh, some of the uh, interviews that I uh, did while I was there. Now, the first guy I spoke to is a guy called Brian Muir. I won't say what he does, because it makes it quite obvious when uh, you start listening. So here we are at um, Wickham Comic Con 2015 and um, I'm here with Brian Muir. Now Brian is, um, has been involved in a lot of, of movies, um, a lot of the Star Wars movies and uh, what exactly have you, have you, have, uh, is it that you have done? Well I'm most famous in a way for do, uh, sculpting the original Darth Vader, the Stormtrooper armour, the Death Star droid, CZ-3 and doing some finishing work on C-3PO on A New Hope, the original Star Wars film. So is the, the Darth Vader that you've actually sculptured, is that mainly from the New Hope or is that from all of them? Because I know there are different variations. A New Hope was the first film, Star Wars film, it was Star Wars. Yeah. So my Vader was used on the first three films, um, which was Empire Strike Back and Return of the Jedi, and there were just slight changes made, uh, but it was the original mask that was used. So they didn't re-sculpt Vader till the very last film, and um, there were a team of about six sculptors that worked on that one for a couple of months, but I did all the original by myself. So what was the reason behind the different changes? Was it to make it easier for the actors? Well, the designer on the original film was John Barry, and um, I, I did it from a, um, a small design by uh, John Mollo, 
the armour was done from the uh, concepts from um, Ralph McQuarrie that it was his concepts that actually got the film Star Wars made it sold the film to uh, 20th Century Fox but we realised that the original concept art that he did for the helmet wouldn't work John Marlowe did a small drawing that I then worked from to do the um, the original Vader helmet mask. The slight changes, there was a new designer on the um, next two films, Empire and Return, Norman Reynolds, and he, won, I think, in a way, wanted to stamp his mark onto the helmet. And what they did is the widow's peak that was on the helmet, they just took that straight across and they made the chin vent uh, uh, bigger, and that's the only changes that were made. On the last one, they uh, filled the V in, and that's the only change they made. They did slightly different paint jobs on all three helmets. The first one, they wanted it to look battle worn and aged, whereas on Empire Strikes Back, it was all pristine uh, and and looked all shiny and, uh, and finished, whereas the first one hadn't. And you've also worked on um, films like Alien, haven't you? Yeah, I worked on them closely with uh, Giga on that one. Uh, a, a guy called Peter Voisier and myself um, sculpted the, um, the original space jockey for that, plus a lot of the other work, the entrances to the spaceship, a lot of the set work, and um, it was quite a nice film to work on, and it's become quite legendary in a way as a film. I mean, the, the actual work that went into the drawings, it must have been quite difficult to make that a reality as it were well not really I mean as a sculptor you see things in 3D if I see something on paper I can immediately see it in three dimension and Giga's um, uh, work was so three dimensional anyway it was really easy to work uh, from and although it was 28 foot high once you've worked out from the model the way you're going to go about it we had a core done in wood and what we did, all the detail was stressed onto that wood. So we did it uh, in one month, the two of us. And uh, you tell people that nowadays because it is so huge, people don't realise that you could do it in that sort of time. It's quite unbelievable, actually, when you think about it. So you've got the people there, and that's a 28 foot high. That is huge. Yeah, it is 28 foot so, yeah, it's big. So, before you started getting into um, this kind of work, what was you doing before that? Uh, I was lucky. I was the only apprentice sculptor ever in the film industry in this country. So, I went straight from school at the age of 16, and I did a, a four-year apprenticeship. Um, from this, I worked on films from the word go, and I went up to art college two days and two nights a week. Um, to do life work, uh, life uh, modelling, uh, life drawing, and did that for four years as well. It must have been quite amazing for you at that age to go straight into the movie industry. It was. It, it was something that came out the blue, and um, there were third, uh, 12 people turned down before me for the job, the apprenticeship, and for me it was lucky 13. That is unbelievable. I'm quite envious of you, actually. <laughs> well, uh, Brian, thanks uh, for talking with us. It's been really, really it's okay. amazing. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. As well.
Yeah, it was really interesting talking to Brian, actually, because to be talking to someone who actually built and sculptured well Vader's helmet for one <laughs> and to actually be involved with the, in the movie industry from the age of 16 that's every kid's dream isn't it really it's to to work on something like that and um, just to have an amazing career working um, not just in the UK but he's obviously worked in the States as well yeah, it must have been amazing for him just knowing even if even if you're the only one who really knows it that something you made just became totally iconic yeah Instantly recognizable, even to non-Star Wars fans. The thing that got me was when he said, oh, I can look at a, a drawing and I instantly see it in 3D. Yeah, that's talent. <laughs> he was showing me some of the photographs of when they were actually designing uh, and building these sets. And uh, like he said, the, the space jockey was, the whole thing was like 28 feet. You've got the people there for perspective and it just looks mammoth it's it's massive it really is and most if you look at the drawings from the, the original concept drawings from alien to me i'd i'd look at that and go how am i supposed to do that <laughs> <laughs> that's why he got the internship <laughs> So uh, we'll go on to the next guy uh, that I spoke to, and his name is Simon Fisher-Becker. And Simon has been in lots of TV shows over the years. And one of the shows that he has been in uh, is probably the most famous British sci-fi show. (laughs) Gee, could that possibly be... (laughs) Oh, I don't know, Star Trek The Next... No, wait a minute, um... (laughs) Could possibly be Doctor Who? Yeah. I imagine that. <laughs> so once again, I'm at the uh, Wickham Comic Con 2015, and I'm here with Simon Fisher-Becker. How you doing, Simon? Uh, tickety-boo, really. I had a bit of difficulty getting in. Really? Yeah, well, I've been all around High Wickham looking for a car park, but, <laughs> but uh, I got here in the end, so... Brilliant. Now, a lot of people will probably know you from, uh, from Doctor Who. Yes. Um, how did you get involved with... Well, I just, you know, being a jobbing actor, my agent called, says, I've got you another casting, and you turn up tomorrow at 11. (laughs) So they emailed through a small script, and uh, I learned it overnight, turned up, and I was one of seven people, and uh, I was the chosen one. It's as as simple as that. Trying to think which generation you... You was with uh, Matt Smith. I I was with Matt Smith. Yeah. Absolutely delightful. Patrick Troughton is my doctor, right? Yes. Uh, 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 But uh, Matt Smith is my special doctor because I got to work with him. And he's utterly delightful, as are the rest of the team. You can always tell um, someone's age, as it were, uh, by the... The Doctor Who that's there, Doctor Who, can't you? Yeah, well, I was born in 1961, so when it all started, I was two. So I, I, I don't quite remember the first episode, uh, despite them showing it twice. Uh, but I do remember William Hartnell changing to Patrick Troughton, and that's why I say Troughton is my doctor. It's your doctor. Yeah. As a Tom Baker is my doctor, yeah, so yeah, that yeah. shows yeah. So is my age. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, so... Um, so what's it like when you go, just obviously now that you're in that uh, folklore, as it were, um, what's it like actually going to these events and, and speaking to you? Well, when I first, when I did my first convention, although I knew what conventions were, I didn't actually know what was expected from me, you see, and, and we don't get a handbook. 
So you and and of course they book you, assuming you've been doing it for a hundred years. Uh, and so there was a bit of each side thinking the other side knew what was going on. Uh, but I was very lucky that uh, I had um, some very nice other actors show me the ropes. Uh, and it is fascinating. Um, I love the fans. Uh, some of my friends sort of scoff at the fans because they dress up in a, in funny outfits. But it's no different than people dressing up for um, uh, um, you know football or rugby teams. You know, it's no different at all. Is it? Is it the people and, showing their colours? Uh, what I always fascinated about these events is how friendly people are and patient because sometimes they have to stay in queues for a long, long time. And uh, you know, although. Uh, you know, they'd rather not. There doesn't seem to be any aggravation. You know, in some other scenarios, you would imagine people getting a bit stroppy. But no, the fans just chat amongst themselves. And also, uh, fans who dress up as the same character. There doesn't seem to be a rivalry. They're, they're sort of sharing uh, uh, tips on where they can get certain things. And so, so it's very much a club. And I'm very lucky this is an international club. So I do literally get to travel the world now. And so you, you've been to some of uh, the, the, the big... Yes, the, the first American one I did was um, Gallifrey One. Oh, wow. In LA. That was the first one in, in 2012. But I've done quite a few. And um, this June, um, in a few weeks' time, I'm going over to Miami for Florida Supercon. So, um, oh, right. Because... Um friend of ours just covered one in Orlando uh, yes. the, the Megacon right yes um, well I'm doing Florida Supercon at the end of June and then in the middle of July there's British Fest which is an American con uh, interested in all English actors who have appeared in sci-fi so J- uh, Jason Connery is going to be there and myself and many others so I'm looking forward to that and then in between on the 1st of July in Nashville I'm filming my one man show Wow! my Dalek has a puncture <laughs> uh, and uh, a TV station in Nashville have asked to record it and so that's what I'm going to do as well so it's a uh, and all because I went for an audition it is amazing so a tip to any actor you know if you're offered an audition go You'd be surprised the number of actors who don't turn up. Yeah. So, so, uh, so, uh, so that's also a tip to aspiring performers: turn up at the audition because you might get it by default. <laughs> well, because they haven't turned up. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I didn't think of that. Yeah. So, <laughs> but uh, uh, it's absolute fun, and there are so many events now, um, uh, and you really do get to travel extensively and meet lovely people. So, one last thing. Um, obviously, because you're in the realms of Doctor Who, uh, they bring out the figures of, uh, of the characters. Um, how does that feel, being immortalised? Well, um, I, I, I was done, as they say. You know, I had little dots put on my nose and my chin and my forehead and all that, and I had to... So I know that there was a thought process of having a drawing figure, but I've not actually seen one. Have you not? So, no. So, but if, if, if people ever see one, let me know. Definitely. Because um, I've not actually seen one. I've seen lots of models that the fans have made themselves. Yeah. But 
but I've not actually seen an official BBC Doctor Who figure. I'll so. have to look out for that, definitely. Uh, I know there's the Winston Churchill. Yes. And uh, one or two, particularly the younger fans, think I'm Ian McNeese. Yes. Yeah, so. <laughs> but there we go. But um, but talk about, I mean, immortalise. I mean, for as long as Doctor Who is is followed, uh, I shall be in somebody's uh, memory banks. You know, so, um, so. And will you be attending the um, Doctor Who festival in November? I haven't been invited yet. It's still quite early days. Oh, yeah, no, no, and it tends to be... I tend to be the last resort sort of thing. No, not really. No, I mean, I did the official one in Cardiff a couple of years ago. So it would be nice to do the one in London. Uh, But uh, like everything else, you have to be invited. Can you go through some of the characters that you've actually played? Just before Christmas, there was a new comedy series called Puppy Love. BBC4, uh, which I was a regular character, Tony Vizzacchini. Um, uh, also, I was in One Foot in the Grave. I did a couple of episodes for that. Uh, and um, other people know me as the Fat Friar of Hufflepuff House. And over 30 years, I've appeared in almost every single TV programme that's regular on uh, in the UK. Right, um, Simon, it's been an absolute pleasure. Well, thank you very much, and uh, thank you all you TGP nominal fans. Thank you very much. You know, do if you bump into me, do say that you heard me um, on the on the airwaves in in the podosphere. In the podosphere. Yeah, I did some searching. I did not see a figurine for his character, although I saw people making requests for one. But apparently there is no such figurine yet. Ah, okay. So just got to keep an eye out for one. <laughs> I, I love living in America and all that, but I hate the fact that it's so freaking big that, oh, yeah, this, this convention is happening here, this convention is happening there, this convention is happening somewhere else, and you can't get there without an airline ticket. Yeah. Whereas with England, it's, what, six-hour drive, depending on traffic maximum? It depends where you are, to be honest with you, because there's some places in the UK that you go, okay, I'll just fly. I mean, if I was to go from here to, uh, say, Edinburgh, it'll take me an hour (laughs) flight, less less than an hour, actually. That's why I was just, I just remember the first time that I was ever over there, and it was back in the days of, you know, the big Road Atlas books. Mm Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, I'm just curious. How long would it take me to get up to Scotland and so forth? And it's like 300-some miles. I was like, what? It's more. It's just about that to get from Philly to Pittsburgh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just like, you've got to be kidding me. The difference being, though, is that it's different dr- driving, completely different driving because of the... Well, yeah. You've got the straight roads in the States where you just keep going and going. Mm-hmm. Yes, and, we do. And here you've got lots of little bends and, <laughs> and stuff. So the next guest we spoke to was really important to us because if it wasn't for him, the garbage pod wouldn't have a name. Now, I don't really need to say any more than that because he really needs no introduction so here we go so here i am again at uh, the wickham comic con 2015 and um, i have the pleasure of talking with the one and only 
Chris Barry. How are you doing, sir? I'm well, thank you very much indeed. Obviously, everyone knows you as, as Rimmer from uh, Red Dwarf. You've been involved in lots of other things. Um, can you go through some of the things that you've been involved in over the years? Well, I think the first thing that uh, people would, some people may know me from, is Spitting Image. Uh, I did quite a few of the voices uh, on that back in the 80s, uh, starting off with um, uh, the pilot in 83 and then, you know, contributing it really most of the 80s. And then uh, Red Dwarf came along, of course, at the end of the 80s. and the British Empire uh, kicked in in about 1991. Uh, and then since then, I've been doing documentaries as well as um, having the joys of appearing in uh, Tomb Raider with uh, oh, some actress that uh, I can't remember her name now. But, uh. That was an excellent character you played. Hillary was uh, a brilliant, brilliant character. It was fun. It was it's much more... Uh, What's the word? It was more restrained than uh, obviously doing a, a British or a Rimmer type performance, um, which, which it has to be for the big screen, I suppose, in a sense. But it, but it was good to work in that big, big format, you know, the movie format. So, I mean, obviously you've got the, the filming later this year for uh, two new series. Um, what's it like getting back with the guys again? Well, I mean, because we've been doing so many conventions and. Um, you know, just generally sort of socialising, meeting up with Doug and discussing the show and, and, and the like. It, it's almost as if we'd never been away from each other. Obviously, we did Series 10 in, in 2012 and Back to Earth in 09. So, you know, we have seen a reasonable lot, uh, amount of each other in, in, over the years. Uh, apart from maybe Craig, obviously, who's been tied up with Corey. Um, but, uh, you know, Robert, Danny, Craig, uh, Danny, Robert, myself, uh, and then Hattie and Norman and the like of sort of, you know, the, the Red Dwarf family, if you like, have been, um, you know, fairly together. Chloe as well, uh, during the convention uh, years. Uh, and 2014 and 15 have been the years of, of conventions, of course. They've just sort of gone mad since last year. Um, uh, so, you know, getting back together. When we got back together in Back to Earth, you know, it, 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 you know, it, it wasn't long. You'd think it would take a long time, you know, given that it was 1998 since we last actually recorded Series 8. Um, you'd think it would take a long time to get, get into gear again, but it didn't. As soon as the outfits were on, although we were on the Coronation Street set, we, um, we clicked into um, to the banter pretty damn quick yeah I can imagine so what, what was it like with the um, transition going uh, working uh, in the production with Dave rather than the BBC um, to be honest with you it was such a long time between uh, series 8 and, and, and back to earth as I say that, that sort of 10 year gap virtually um, that you know, working with the BBC had sort of got out of our system, you know. Um, it was like drawing a new slate. You know, things are different, you know. Budgets are a little bit tighter. And, uh, you know, there's a, there's a different feel in, in the studio. Technology's changed, of course. Um, so, yeah, it, it, any more than that, I can't really say. I'd, I'd, I'd probably have to sort of get into a few details, but um, but you know, I'm, to be honest, I'm not fully in the knowledge of exactly um, 
you know, department to department, you know, the, the changes that took place. But yes, it was certainly, let's just say, it was more of a sort of cottage industry working latterly than it would have been in a bigger BBC production of the 90s. You know, TV changed a lot in the 21st century, and, um, you know, I think comedy has, has suffered in a sense, you know. Uh, so I would say, yeah, it's just everything's a little bit tighter. But that doesn't really necessarily mean, as we know from Series 10, that the quality's got to go down. Oh, the quality was just... I think we did some of the best work we ever did in, uh, in Series 10. I think so too. It's, um, some of the comedy was absolutely awesome. Um, the writing was there. Classic, classic dwarf, basically. Um, but there you go. Quickly before we go, could you do a, a, a quick ident for us? Sure. Um, would you mind doing it as as, um, as Arnold, or would of course, you prefer yeah. This is Arnold J. Rimmer from Red Dwarf. You're listening to TGP Nominal. Listen to it. Thank you, Chris. Before we, before I leave you, as you were kind of like the forefather of our podcast because of the garbage pond, um, I'd like you to present you with one of our mission patches. Thank you very much indeed. Would you mind um, having a photo taken with it so we can put you on the honorary crew member page? If, if we do a photo, can I ask you to pop some money in the charity pot? Absolutely. Brilliant. There we go. So there you go, that was Chris Barry from Red Dwarf and uh, a lot of other programmes. He mentioned a, a programme there called Spitting Image, which you're probably not aware of that one. All the characters are puppets of people in the news. So if you were famous in the 1980s, they had a rubber puppet made of you and they took the rise out of you really um <laughs> chris was famous for doing the voice of ronald reagan <laughs> in that show were those the uh, puppets from genesis line of confusion video it was yeah okay okay <laughs> so you know which ones we're on about then he did the voice of the ronald reagan character that was in in that <laughs> i i will confess i never got into red dwarf but that segment was awesome. Yeah, it was, for me, it was uh, just so cool to talk to a guy who inspired the name of the podcast. <laughs> and he just seemed like he was talking to you like you guys have been lifelong friends. Never met the guy before. I know, but that's just, like, that's, that's just he's just going on. It's like, you know, would you, would you do something for us? Sure. It's like, wow. <laughs> that was really cool. I really thought I was... You know, getting close to the mark by saying, "Yeah, can you do an ident for us?" And would you mind having your photograph taken with the patch? Uh, I thought he was going to say, "No, go away." <laughs> no, um, but you know, just said, "Put some money in the charity thing," which we didn't mind doing. Both of us, uh, myself and Colin Kitchen, our photographer for the day, we both put some money in there. It was for a good cause, and we'll talk about that a bit later on, actually, because it does come up again. The next one is a guy called Paul Warren. Now, Paul, well. I think he describes himself as a creature performer. <laughs> and, um, yeah, this is what he, he had to say. So, we're still here at Wickham Comic Con 2015, and um, I'm with Paul Warren, uh, who is... What would you class your, what, what you do? Uh, creature performer. Uh, 
I mean, a lot of us like to say we're actors, but we, we just, well, we just run around in monster suits, really. So, creature performer is quite, quite sort of out of time. Well, that sounds like fun to me. Yeah, it's good fun. I love it. I enjoy it. It's great to be able to do it and then, you know, do stuff like this and, you know, chat to people about the different characters and, yeah, sort of relive all the terrible memories of, of being uncomfortable. <laughs> Yeah, so some of the characters you've been are kind of the thing of nightmares, really, in terms yeah. of some people. But being in is probably correct. That's probably the better way of putting it. That's what it feels like, like you inhabit and get inside them. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, it's, it's nice now when you look back on it, but at the time it's like any other job, you know, it's hard work and, you know. So I know you spend a lot of time in, in makeup. Um, yeah, how, how long, on average, do you spend being made up? About three, three or four hours a day sometimes. Wow. So, so it's possibly an early start for you. 3 a.m. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Take us through some of the, the characters that you've actually played. Sure. Okay. Um, I mean, each one's a little bit bizarre, but they, they seem to get me in for like the, 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 the little creepy, horrible little buggers. So um, I, I played a, a, um, an alien in Guardians of the Galaxy um, in the prison scene. I um, also worked on Thor The Dark World. I was playing a creature marauder. Um, I actually started out as a Harry Potter double. It was my first first job, uh, which got me into the creature stuff. So um, I spent a lot of time on Order of the Phoenix, you know, doing that kind of thing. Yeah, there was a, there was a, a Clash of the Titans. Um, I played a, a, a tortured soul in that. And anytime they need something a little bit freaky and a little bit weird, and they give me a call and I put on the suit and do what they want me to do, you know. So one of the um, things you were talking to us earlier about was your role in uh, Captain America. Yeah, Captain America. I did the um, the skinny um, Captain America. Um, CGI tests uh, I was the template original template for the character um, director uh, Joe Johnson and Chris Evans um, basically sat down and chatted to them about what they wanted and how they were going to do the effect and in the end they actually used uh, very little body doubling but they did use a, a, um, a combination of myself another guy motion capture CGI doubling uh, shrinking but the majority of the film is Chris Evans shrunk down oh right um, but there's a, there's a few shots here and there. I mean, the main one I did uh, was part of the one where he's in the recruitment office, um, sitting there reading a newspaper. Um, so it's, you know, it's getting up, walking around, nothing too extravagant. But, uh, yeah, it's great to be a part of it. Brilliant. So, as, as I say, it's awesome to think that you were Captain America. You said your words, not mine. <laughs> <laughs> That's what the people are saying. The people, the people have spoken. But yeah, I suppose, yeah. yeah. I mean, I was part of it. I'm part of it, you know, the creation. So when you see it on screen, I definitely helped with the creation of the process. Yeah. I mean, maybe not as much as a lot, a lot of people, like the CGI people did the main uh, the work on it, but you know, a small part of the jigsaw, yeah. And I know there's, there's one other thing that we can't talk about. But all I'm going to say is, yeah. in December, yeah. watch this space. Yeah. Paul might be involved in something. Yeah. <laughs> we'll leave it at that. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm looking forward to that one. I mean, uh, I think everybody is. Yeah, so, yeah, get very excited. Speaking of which, there's Darth Vader. Oh, my word. Yes. Very good. 
and some of the some of the film service from Star Wars Rebels as well. So it is. Yeah. You know better yeah. than I do. From the new cartoon series. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yes. Uh, well, thanks for talking with us, Paul. Pleasure. And uh, we'll speak to you again. Yeah, Paul was really interesting to talk to and uh, he's actually agreed to come back on the show in January when uh, the embargo has been lifted <laughs> about <laughs> episode seven. <laughs> uh, but it was a bit of a giveaway when you saw the outfit that he was wearing. Um, he had a kind of a hoodie with uh, uh, Star Wars creature uh, unit on the arm and uh, seven on the on the front and Star Wars on the back. <laughs> so yeah, must be nice. <laughs> I can actually now look at the credits and go, I know that guy. <laughs> <laughs> but as I say, he's, he's a creature of some description, and there's a castle scene in the movie. We know this because it's been in uh, Vanity Fair. Uh, there's a rogue gallery in there of different creatures, and he's quite possibly one of those, but I don't know because he's made up. <laughs> yeah. So we'll just have to wait and see in December. <laughs> It'll be here. I'm, I'm now starting to see things on Facebook about however many Fridays until Star Wars 7. Yeah, I've seen a lot of those as well. <laughs> it's going to be awesome, though. Can't wait. <laughs> So the next person I spoke to is a guy called Barry Holland. Now, Barry is famous for a phrase in the uh, Star Wars saga. He was in Return of the Jedi. Uh, He played, um, I think the character was Lieutenant Renz. And he is famous for the scene in the bunker on Endor when the uh, rebels are trying to put all those detonators in there and uh, he turns to Han Solo and says you rebel scum and yeah he's been in a lot of other films and TV shows as well and uh, we had quite a long uh, conversation with him and uh, this is what he had to say so we're back again at the uh, Wickham Comic Con 2015 and I'm here with uh, Barry Holland now how are you doing sir? Fine, thank you. I'm pleased to be in uh, High Wickham. We've never done a show here before. I don't think many people have. So it's a really first time. And I hope in future there'll be a few more. Certainly in these areas. There's a lot of fans. I, I'm a fan. You know, we're all fans. But unfortunately, because of the costs involved, many fans can't just afford to go to London or Manchester or maybe Newcastle, where maybe they have more of these shows. So it's nice, it's nice to have them more in the provinces where people who... You, you've got jobs. You can't just take a day off from the job. You've got children to support. I've had that, you know. And uh, it, it's not easy, is it? That's right, absolutely. So I think it's great to have the shows today be more... It, it, it's fun for me too, as I hope we get invited occasionally to a lot of them. You know. I know you've, you've been involved in many, many films, uh, but obviously the, the one that you're most famous for, and the, most, the character that you're most famous for... It's uh, Lieutenant Renz uh, from Lieutenant uh, Jedi, isn't it? It's correct. It's funny that because it wasn't. A, it was another job years ago. I hope the fans don't think I'm putting Star Wars down. I'm not. There's a lot of work around those days. There's a lot of big films around. More than you get now, really, in British studios. 
maybe a lot of TV things now that people do EastEnders, things like that. I never did that. I did TV things like The Professionals for years, Minder for years, uh, The Sweeney, uh, what else? Um, Inspector Morse, Poirot, and all that stuff. Not so much the soaps. And American ones like I did Heart to Heart, people know that, with Robert Wagner. Uh, Tom Selleck with, with Magnum did that. And I worked with him on two feature films as well. Now he's a lovely guy. One of the best you'll ever meet. You know, he really is a really nice person. You know, of the TV ones. I did Love Boat also years ago. One of my daughters, when they were about three years old, I took them down. You know. And, um, but over the years, most of the stuff I did by chance was bigger mo movies, you know, um, American mostly. You, you mentioned to me earlier that uh, one of the films that you, you've appeared in is Quadrophilia, which is one of my favourite films of all time, actually. Uh, it's amazing how that film is so popular. Remember that was 1977, I think, or yeah. 1979, 77, yeah. or 78. 78 I think yeah I was I, it's, it sounds odd but I was in an advertising agency with a another actor and another one just the three of us watching a screening and something to do with the story in the studio that was it I also was one of the policemen on the beach when the Mos and Rockers were fighting yeah had a great time on that so um, amazed at the popularity of that even today even with younger people who I mention other films too they don't know who I'm talking about but Quadrophenia oh yeah I don't know that it's a, it's a favourite of mine because my dad was a mod in the, in the 60s oh, really? so um, oh right with a scooter yeah but, um, actually he had his scooter thrown over Chelsea Bridge by a rocker so um. <laughs> well I had a Lambretta fair enough I, got a, I must put it on Facebook for friends of mine uh, I sold it in the 60s I had it before I had a car uh, about 1960 with a former girlfriend I married and got divorced from you know and, uh, I still got the pictures of it, but in those days it was the, uh, I think the, the other one, the, uh, what's the other famous make? Vesper. Vesper, that's what I think of, yeah. Vesper and Lambretta. Yeah. I prefer the Lambretta Vesper. Uh, but, so that was a lot of fun for me, in a sense, because I did not have a scooter at the time I did. I'd sold it years earlier. But the only trouble with scooters as well, they're great on hot weather or dry surfaces, because of the small wheels, you know. It's easy to slide on ice and to do yourself. I at least came off three times, like I did the help so I managed to somehow just get bruised. I used to have a big windscreen on those at the time. And I, had, I, I gave up those in the end. I shattered at least two. And, I'm not, and in 1959-60, um, say maybe five, ten pound one was expensive. You've got to remember that even in 1970, petrol was about 25p a gallon. I drove to Elba once, Napoleon's Island, with a girlfriend in 1971. It cost me £7 in petrol. I wouldn't even get to Heathrow with that now from where I live in Hertfordshire. There and back, you've got to be joking. So what's the whereabouts of you in Hertfordshire? Sorry? Whereabouts are you in Hertfordshire? Old Hatfield. I'm in Letchworth. Oh, it's just the other garden city, the Wedding Garden City. It's yeah. the garden city, it's like uh, Wedding Garden City. It's yeah. not far. But, um, I worked on uh, Ragtime in 1980, three weeks with James Cagney, and he was ace. 
and Patty Brown. For me to meet James Cagney was like one of the guys out there meeting Harrison Hall, you know, who were younger, you know, and I thought, wow, you know, James Cagney. And he was family. A lot of people like that I had the pleasure of meeting. But um, we worked on three and Indiana Jones as well, the first three, you know. Did, um, uh, I did Michael Keaton's Batman, where I lived. I had a scene with Billy Dee Williams and, uh, what's the name, who's the mayor, uh, and uh, worked on three, I think it's three or four Superman films with Christopher Reeve. Was alive. Sadly, he had that terrible accident. That's right. Well, anybody has a terrible accident. I don't care whether he's a, somebody walking down the street. You know, it's awful. You know. But um, things like that. Uh, it was a lot of fun. I did a lot of American officers and British officers. It was always fun for me to dress up. I, had I was in the British Army for two years in the 50s. I was very lucky, I had a walk, I suppose, I was a private secretary to a retired brigadier, and it taught me a lot about mixing with high-ranking officers how to do that. Right? But years later, never thought I'd need it. It gave me a lot of experience of what they were like, you know, not in the 50s and 40s in the army. Much different than today. Things like that. I worked on the Mutant on the Boundary, it's all kind of thing. The Elephant Man, you know, loads of them. You know. The opening sequence is only a bit, but... And the other man was Anthony Hopkins and myself, with big snow plant hats, walking into the fairground. Got a great big one of those top hats and Victorian suit and coloured stuff around, you know, yeah. But uh, it was a lot of fun. I don't take it too seriously. I don't, you know, it's always a pleasure to meet lots of fans. I'm a fan, so... Yeah, I might bore people listening to me, but I did some theatre years ago when I was a teenager. When I did some theatre. I did Shakespeare in Germany when I was 18, more in the National Service. But it never, when I came out, took a hold of me as much as movie acting. People say some British actors have that snobby attitude. No, he's not an actor. You know, he's never done Shakespeare. You know, film acting is. I'll just say this quickly. Film acting is totally different to theatre acting. Yeah. So let me say, if you're a great theatre actor, you'd be a great film actor, or vice versa. Yeah. Then I get the silly comments, oh, the director can stop the camera and redo the scene. Really? Do you know what some directors are like? They'll do a war dance in front of everybody and make you look about an inch tall. Yeah, if you don't get it right the first time. I've heard that. And have a short fuse. And you've got to remember, it's not like a closed set. You've got the tea lady there, the makeup, the hairdressers. The rigger's probably upstairs in the, in the scaffolding. You've got your friends there going, uh, <laughs> That's you know, nice. behind your back thinking, <laughs> you know, you know, well, things like that. So, I remember once at a scene in Bloodline, I was a head croupier in a club with James Mason. I worked with James, he loved me, man, James Mason, another very nice British actor. And um, no problem, certainly. Did some great work over the years. Never thought years ago I'd meet him, but I worked with him. And just the two of us on the street, and um, I just seen my walk up to him again. They cleared the room out. There's only like a couple of people at the table. He was talking to one girl or something. And I walk over, and I have to say to whisper in his ear, "You wanted in the office, something like that." And uh, they wouldn't pay me for doing a two shot with James Mason and the dialogue. <laughs> so they said they crafted, they get round it. So it was like forty quid to do the bit just in with him, the close and then another one did if you did that or seven, you know, something And uh, on, the, on the spur of the moment things, you know. And uh, not going through a personal manager like that, you know, you're suddenly there and they want something you can do it. So it worked out a lot for some of us who were good actors. Yeah, you thought. 
And you've got a good name in the business like that. Anyway, oh, I thought, I'm out of camera shots and I get really near the game. So you can be charged where to stop. You've got to work it out in your own head. The director expects you to do this and you might get it wrong to what he sees. So I walk over there and I thought, oh, what I'll do is I'll get and I'll touch his arm. So I touched his arm and it was, um, I say it was, it was Terence uh, Young. I always remember him sitting on the stool eating sandwich. What the hell are you doing? He shouted out in front of everybody. What the hell are you doing? He says, um, I don't want to touch his arm. This is not a romance. You know, so I thought, what? I looked at him. Then he says to James Mason, don't flatter your eyelids, James, he said, when you, when you look, at the, look at the office. I thought, well, so I walked back and thought, so next time I thought, I did like this, and the joke was, when I walk up to do this, and you see, you've got a great picture of here, and he goes, he goes, um, uh, well, I looked at it years later, and you see me go away, there's, you know, that to the right, Two seconds later, I come by again. <laughs> I really left the scene. Double take, yeah. They left it, in it. <laughs> Hilarious. Uh, before I, um, I leave you, yeah. I've been fooled up to ask. But could you say the line for me? Uh, if I can remember it. Uh... <laughs> There's a, just quickly, I'll add to that. There's this scene here, the Sunday Central. That's from the Blue Red that's when I first rehearsed this scene yeah. um, this guy sent me this picture and I, I looked at it I thought I can't resist it and I made up a caption I, uh, my line was I'll say it now you rebel scum and um, when this guy sent me this picture and Harrison sent it the very first rehearsal we did he slapped my face lightly now I'm not making this up for effect He's, he's, he went over and he just slapped my back. What did you call me, he said? I think it's on Blu-ray. I think, I'm not sure all what he said to me is on Blu-ray. And that picture is what a guy said to me. When he when that was Blu-ray, that's when he's saying, what did you say to me? And he went like that. And I said, like, so I made up a caption for that. I put it back on Facebook. I said, oh, um, Harrison Paul, what did you say to me? Lieutenant Benz. No, no, I can't remember. I can't remember my line. When he actually did that scene with Harrison Ford, Harrison Ford is renowned for ad-libbing. When he said, you rebel scum, he turned and said, what did you call me? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Which is is very typical. Um, I mean, the the other line that uh, Han Solo is famous for saying, and and Harrison Ford had actually ad-libbed it, was the scene in Empires in the carbon freezing chamber where um, Han is supposed to say, after Princess Leia says, I love you, he's supposed to say, I love you too. But in typical Han Solo fashion, he said, I know. (laughs) See, I love you too just would not have worked at all. That just would have been so campy. So the, the the I know oh my god that that was perfect. <laughs> okay, let's test your your Harrison Ford trivia then. Uh, what's one of the lines that was ad libbed uh, from Raiders of the Lost Ark? Oh man, it's got to be something to do with the snakes. No, nope. it's not. He might have. But that's not the one I'm thinking of. 
No, I can't think. I don't want to say ad-libbed, but the part where he shot the guy with the sword. Oh, yeah. That that was pretty disgust because they were just having a really bad time with some uh, digestive tract issues. We'll put it that way. Mm -hmm. But after they escape and they're overlooking the truck as it's about to leave... He says, you know, I'm going to go after that truck. And Sala just says, how? He says, I don't know. I'm making this up as I go. And he <laughs> runs off camera. <laughs> yeah. Uh, there's, there's so many good bits and pieces from, especially from the Indiana Jones movies. I think one of my favorite bits uh, that um, you will see it in um, the extra features in uh, the DVDs or the Blu-ray. When there's the bit when he's riding a horse in uh, The Last Crusade. And uh, whatever they do, they can't stop his hat from falling off. Um, so they actually put some something onto his head uh, so they can actually staple <laughs> his hat to his head. Uh, yeah, but I can see that happening. <laughs> uh, the next guy I spoke to uh, is a guy called Martin Ballantyne. He is uh, a jobbing actor and he's been in quite a few bits and pieces and uh, we had a really nice conversation with him and this is what he had to say. So, back at Wickham Comic Con 2015 and I'm with uh, Martin Ballantyne. Now, what kind of things have you been involved in, Martin? Well, I'm here today primarily for my involvement in the Batman film. Uh, where I played the Joker's henchman uh, in The Dark Knight, which is actually my favourite film. And also the two Harry Potters I did off the back of working on the Batman film, which was The Hubbler Prince, where I played a character called Scary Face. And then they got me back uh, for Deathly Hallows, where I played a character called Mundungus Fletcher's associate. And they're the ones, really, that people want to chat to me about. And also Golden Compass, which I did before all this. So uh, um, that's why I'm here, and that's why I do lots of these conventions, which I love doing. People are so lovely. I've noticed that because we're quite new to the uh, convention scene ourselves and since we've been here uh, just people are so approachable yes and everyone's got so many lovely things to say and you get to meet with the other actors who I've known for lots of conventions there's done about 100 conventions now absolutely love it and you see the same faces mainly primarily from Star Wars because obviously Star Wars has got a massive following and you get a lot of new friends and I get most of my work actually via my friends and Facebook which is great so I love it so how did you get involved get started uh, Um, like a lot of people I started in amateur dramatics Uh, I'm a big guy I used to be a lot bigger and um, I ended up playing heavies on stage doorman that kind of thing Um, someone I was actually working with at the theatre said oh you'll try and get yourself in film so I sent some headshots off got myself an agent in London ended up getting lots of little sort of heavies parts in um, sort of TV and film little independent stuff and that finally led to a part in the Golden Compass and I needed a new agent because the way it works is you have to get sort of bought and sold like a commodity so I then had a new agent who happened to be casting for the Batman film so after the Golden Compass they got me in the Batman film and that's all Warner Brothers and then Warner Brothers wanted someone for another big guy for the Harry Potters they got me in I worked on it for three months on Half-Blood Prince didn't have much screen time didn't get any lines so they got me back for the last one Definitely Hallows and they gave me a couple of lines which was great and um, I'm now here doing this kind of thing wow so am I getting this right that sometimes you need different agents depending on yes what definitely <laughs> I would definitely say so uh, I'm based in Norwich and originally I only had a Norwich based agent 
and don't get me wrong I was getting work but all around sort of Norwich if you want to get sort of in the big Hollywood films you need to get to London which is what I did so I was constantly travelling to London don't get me wrong there's a lot a lot of hard work involved a lot of sleeping in cars they don't just stick you in Harry Potter or Batman you do have to work your way up to getting there I've just given you a very potted history of what I did I mean I've, I've been in about 100 films over, over my time and a lot of them are films I've never even seen tiny little parts but eventually that big film comes along and then you end up getting it it's it's a very 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 difficult business to actually get any um, success in and don't get me wrong I love doing the Batman and the Harry Potters but my involvement in it is relatively small and I've had bigger involvement in lesser known films but people only really want to talk to you about the big films i.e. the Batmans and the Harry Potters so some I mean you're saying that you get more you've had more involvement with some of these independent movies as it were yes a lot of the time is off the back of actually being in Batman and Harry Potter but that's the way it goes I like to work with students as well I always feel it's like giving a bit back so people quite often approach me to, to work with them which I love doing because that way you know you can sort of they've got the kudos of having someone from Batman or Harry Potter in their film that helps them I get a bigger role which is nice for me as an actor and um, yeah so it's all sort of all, all works well and doing the conventions is just like a cherry on the on the top really so you're basically passing on your knowledge that's how I feel yeah yes I mean I'm an equity member now so I've got Stephen Fry to thanks for that because uh, I used to be in Kingdom and I had a regular role of a character called Jason and that got me my equity card and I still try and do stage whenever I can but yeah it's all it's all good as far as I can see that's actually probably where I know you from actually from Kingdom yes I played Jason in Kingdom uh, (laughs) I used to love Kingdom yeah I have no idea why they took it off because it's such an awesome I've actually got a picture somewhere from my my character from Kingdom I'll show you after the interview and uh, I actually named my firstborn son after my character Jason which is great so uh, (laughs) because at the time that's my biggest role so what's um Stephen Fry like he's a lovely guy different as a boss he's um, yes he's got lots of different personas uh, his boss persona is quite scary because he's quite a very demanding man but he's a lovely lovely man and I actually worked for him because the original first series of Kingdom was made by Paragon Productions yeah Paragon Productions which is his own production company and he made sure that everyone had uh, equity contracts I then subsequently appeared in season 2 and 3 but I wasn't working for Stephen Stephen was then a technically an employee he'd actually sold the rights from his company so I then wasn't working for Stephen but um, yeah lovely guy and amazing talent and there's the only problem with Stephen is everyone wants a bit of him so there's only a little bit to go around yeah, that's right. and he's constantly called upon I mean I just watched him in the new hot one but five armies getting squashed by a dragon yeah. so that was quite, quite, quite good fun and so uh, and of course with the Norfolk connection as well yes so. he loves Norfolk and there's loads of famous people in Norfolk that's where all the famous people go because they don't get bothered they love it so, um, I, when I was in Norwich last a few years ago and he was doing a book signing at the big um, that's right yeah he does book signs all the time at the what's, what's the name of the Gerald's uh, probably the one yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I was there I was there loads yeah I only to say hello yeah so um yeah, and he does talks at the assembly rooms where he does readings from his books. And recently, I watched him on Netflix. He did um, a thing on where he's reading from his latest book. And um, yeah, he's he's an amazing guy. Very good. Yeah, I think he's he's one of these people that he's on um, everybody's list to, to uh, have dinner with. I think. <laughs> yes. Perfect dinner guest. Yeah, no, he's a, he's a lovely man, and I've never heard a word against him. Yes, lovely. Brilliant. Well. Uh, 
Martin. Thanks for talking with us. Thank you very much. Cheers. Thank you. I just can't get over how personable these all these guys seem to be. It's like you just walk up to him and it's like, oh, hey, how's it going? And it's like, that's just amazing. We didn't know how people would respond to just uh, someone kind of sticking a microphone in your face and saying, hey, would you mind talking to us for a few moments? You know, basically everyone wanted to to say their thing. Um, Some more than others, actually. (laughs) (laughs) But there was a few people we didn't actually get to speak to, but um, there's plenty of other Uh, events that we can go to the next person we spoke to was a really lovely lady whose name is pam rose now pam as she mentions at the beginning of this clip she's most famous for star wars as a lot of the people i spoke to on the day were mainly star wars and she played a character called lee subsurl now lee subsurl is uh one of the characters that was in the cantina scene she didn't say very much but she didn't say anything at all but she's even got action figures. You know you've made it in a Star Wars film when you've got an action figure. <laughs> so here we are again at uh, Wickham Comic Con 2015 and I'm here with Pam Rose who has been involved in quite a few things over the years. So, hi Pam, how are you doing? Hi, thank you for coming by. So, can you tell us some of the things that you've been involved with? most famous for Star Wars. I was in the first one, A New Hope, and I was one of the aliens in the cantina. Oh, wow. And I never thought that 38 years later that I'd be famous and have a doll and badges and pictures and things. I'd never had anything. I had two Polaroids, which I was allowed to take on the set, which was an honour, because my dad was very ill. They knew that if I had them, I'd never use them until 100 years later. That's special, isn't it? And I did Space 1999, three Superman. I did Minder, Professional Special Branch. Wow. And worked with Anthony Hopkins, Vincent Price. Vincent Price. An absolute gentleman. Yes, I've heard he's probably one of the... Nicest people you would have ever liked to meet. He used to make me laugh because on set, between takes, he used to sit in the chair and like click asleep. And I've never seen anybody fall asleep so fast in my life. But he was an absolute gentleman. So you say you've worked on Space 1999. Did you actually get to meet Jerry Anderson? I can't remember. On next week with Jamie Anderson, his son. Yes. So, and that'll be my third Space 1999 show. So, loads of pictures. Young and virginal. You look awesome in the uniform. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm getting quite well known on the circuit now, so it's it's quite nice because people come back to see you and things like that. So. I've asked this question to a lot of people that have been in things where there have been action figures made up. How does that feel for you, having an actual figurine of yourself? Well, it would have been nice if they'd have told me. Oh, right. It came out in 2009, and I'd only just sort of gone on to Facebook, and one of my friends in France said, I've just bought your action figure. I said, where did you get that? He said, Forbidden Planet in London. So, living in London, I coat on, down the shop. And now, they are really, really hard to find. 
must admit, I, I've seen them online, but I've not actually seen one uh, up close. It's quite amazing, isn't it? So it's quite good because you've got me on the front, and you've got me oh, on the back. There, yeah. So, I like to support everybody, you know. 
as much as I can. Anyway. So, so you've been involved with Jug Squad as well as uh, Lee Squad. Yeah. Dan is just a, a really nice fella. Uh, we've had the pleasure of dealing with, with, with them before. Um, and he's also put me in touch with the organisers of the Field of Force Day. Yeah. It's, um, if you like charity events, that would be a good one to attend. I think, is that the one that was in Peterborough before? Yeah. I did the first one. Oh, you did? Yeah. And, uh, there's, there's three of them now, one, one down in Plymouth, and there's another one as well, so they're expanding all the time. Well, that's good, but as I say, I support the boys in Canada. One of their children was born with a big growth on the back of his head, and he's about five, coming up to six now. And Jace Wars, it's called, and all sorts. It's just, it's just brilliant. This is another reason why we get involved because we like to promote events and charity organisations as much as possible as well. And it's a great day out for people. Yeah. You know, where, where are they going to meet all of us? Where are they going to see all the costumers? That's it. Where are they going to see all the toys and memorabilia? Especially around here because it's never been done before. That's it. You know, I think that's a good thing. One of the strange things about Space 1999, there was a planet on there called Luton. I lived on another planet for years. <laughs> it's just strange that it was called Luton. I was like, Luton is a planet? You know? <laughs> <laughs> I never had one picture from space, and I did eight episodes. And so going on to Facebook, which has been in the last few years... Mm-hmm. One of the directors of the episodes sent me the link with all the pictures. So, uh, oh, so you've had access to them all? Uh, it tells me what the episode, what colour I was wearing, what I was supposed to be doing. That is brilliant. So, uh, then with Star Wars, I was in Germany and somebody put up the Star Wars Encyclopedia and yep. said, there's a little black and white picture at the top. He said, can you sign this? I said, yes. Never thought any more about it because it was in German. And I thought, what have I just signed? <laughs> and eventually I found out it was in the Star Wars Encyclopedia. Yeah. Um, which has gone by. Stephen Sansweet's uh, Encyclopedia. Yeah. 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 I got that one myself. <laughs> Well, as I say, you, for a, a small part, 39 years ago... Well, you, you think about some of the small parts that are in the Star Wars universe well, have become some of the most iconic characters. Well, I never knew anything about this, the memorabilia, autographs, anything. Mm-hmm. And when I retired from running a casino in London, I joined my old agency. And she phoned me up and she said, um, I've got fan mail for you. What are you talking about, fan mail? She said, there's all these geeks looking for you. <laughs> and that was the start of it. So, there we go. That's it. I mean, uh, Boba Fett, um, as I said, Jeremy Bullock's character, virtually said nothing in the, in the, in the films. But I didn't probably, say anything. He's one of the biggest characters I've got. Yeah. And so... I don't know how the, some of the big stars feel about that. But <laughs> well, if they're nice people, they think good on them. It's just part of the universe, yeah. isn't it? You know, the thing is, now with the youngsters, they think, oh, if we appear in something for two minutes, 
don't say a word. We're famous. But, you know, my first appearance on TV was 1966. I used to dance on Ready, Steady, Go. Wow. And then in and out of the casino and things like that. And I worked in Brighton when they made a What a Lovely War. And that was the first film. I actually left the casino and worked on the film for three months. Came back to London, did the Battle of Britain. Yeah. <laughs> Go back a few days. So, yeah, so working on something, uh, I'd say, as a dancer on, on, on Steady Go, I mean, the atmosphere at that time must have been quite electric. Oh, God. But the thing is, I also used to work in Carnaby Street. Oh, wow. So, what can you say? I knew the Bee Gees, the Rolling Stones used to gig at the local hall when I was at college. The Who were friends of mine, and you met, you know, it's not all these 10 million people watching a little tiny screen anymore, you know, it was... Yeah, I'm gonna have a boogie yeah. while they were playing. That's it. You know? uh, my mum tells me stories of she used to go down the, um, the Two Eyes Club and things like that, and she used to hang around with Hank Morgan and people like that. And, um, I, uh, so I did a film with Cliff Richard Donkeys years ago. Right. What was that? I can't remember. <laughs> <laughs> the thing is, you know, a lot of the time the films came out under a different name anyway. Yeah, yeah. You know, they have a working title, you know, that's Star Wars, you never thought. It was unusual, but... Well, Star Wars went under the working name of Blue Harvest, originally. Did it? Yeah, it was a code name that they used, so nobody knew what it was. So, a bit strange, but... <laughs> you know, I did five days on it, you know, but never thought anything about it, really. It was, it was a job, and it was good for me because I spent three hours a day in makeup. So I did five days shoot and got two days overtime just for makeup, so I was well happy. Yeah, easy money. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I used to get a rag. They used to call me the Egghead because it was around about Easter time when we did it. So, um, I don't tell many people that. <laughs> <laughs> so, absolute pleasure to talk with you, Pam. Thank you very much for taking the time. Nice to meet you. She is the patch badge queen. She's got them from every single convention that she's been to and had every involvement. And I wish I'd have known that on the day um, because I only took one patch badge with me to take there for, for Chris. And uh, then I found out about Pam and she was really lovely with us. Um, and I followed her on Facebook and said, look, Pam, we do have our own patch badge. Um, would you like one? And she said, well, do you want me to buy it or would you like to swap? And I said, do you have your own patch badge? And she said, yeah, I've got my own patch. And I said, yeah, I'd swap with you. That'd be great. So she gave me her address and um, I sent the patch to her. And a few days later, uh, it actually arrived on my birthday. Uh, we thought it was a birthday card, and we couldn't work out who the writing was from on the on the envelope. And everyone was like, oh, open it, open it, because we don't know who it is. So I opened it, and I thought, well, this isn't a birthday card. It's got a, the card. It's a greetings card. It's got her character on the front. Um, it's got the Star Wars logo. It's got the, the picture, the, the classic picture of Luke Skywalker with the lightsaber in the air with Leia with the gun, you know, the, the usual picture from the original new hope and it just says pam rose lee subserlin star wars episode four a new hope may the force be with you 
and inside she's written hi mark thank you for the swap lots of love pam and on my birthday um she actually sent me a message on facebook nice um that had a picture of her uh, around one of the similar tables that han was sitting when um, he shot greedo first and she's pointing the gun in my direction saying you will have a good birthday <laughs> <laughs> nice um so yeah i've got one of her patch badges i also got another one from the convention uh which i will talk about in a moment but pam has been involved in lots of different things not just star wars she was in space 1999 as she mentioned there loads and loads of television series over the years um she goes to pretty much every convention going as she mentioned there she was at the andercon um which we mentioned in a previous episode the uh, jerry anderson she's she's been to that she she was at most of the conventions and she has this um kind of like a blanket that she puts all the the patch badges on um so i'm hoping the tgp nominal patch will end up on it with all the rest of the the star wars ones really <laughs> really 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 nice as was the next guy i spoke to who was a guy called alan fling Okay, once again, we're uh, here at uh, the uh, Wickham Comic Con 2015, and I'm here with Alan Flynn. What are you most famous for? Well, I'm noted for being in Star Wars films. I was in uh, The Empire Strikes Back as a Stormtrooper and as a Snowtrooper, a Hoth Rebel and a Hoth Technician. Wow, you've done quite a bit of them then. So. Yes, well, they, they certainly knew how to use me, so they got their money's worth. <laughs> <laughs> so what, what was it like working on this? On that particular set, I was um, I was engaged primarily to work on the carbon chamber set, where Han Solo goes down in the lift and then comes back up in a block of carbonite. Well, that took seven weeks to shoot. It was very, very complicated because the set was uh, 18 feet high off the ground. There was no safety rail around it at all. One stormtrooper actually did walk off the edge and was, funnily enough, not injured by, but was saved by his armour. Because as he landed on his back on the concrete below, it shattered into a thousand pieces and yeah, basically that's it, yeah, took all the impact out of it. Um, but it was, a, it was a bad set to work on. Um, it looks wonderful. It's completely circular, referring to a, a picture I've got here of the set under construction. It was a, a very large disc with a tier above it. And the only way for us to access this set was to climb an 18-foot ladder. In, because in armour? In armour, <laughs> with our helmets on, because you couldn't carry them up the, up the ladder. There was one staircase built, but it was blocked by the camera crew and their lenses and their magazines and the standby makeup and the standby wardrobe and standby this, standby that. They all crammed into the staircase and us poor buggers ended up just having to climb that ladder. And we didn't go up very often because uh, it was important to keep the set hot. Um, if you look at that uh, particular scene, the floor is a grid and there's steam venting out from it all the time and that was live steam it wasn't smoke effect it must have been unbearable work. 
was incredibly hot. We used to get up to 135 to 140 degrees Fahrenheit. And then they would lock off the doors and we couldn't go outside. Once it was up to temperature, it had to stay that temperature because otherwise the camera would fog with cold air coming in. So that took seven weeks to shoot. But on the days when they were doing close-ups of Han Solo or any of the other characters, and we weren't required, we were kept off the set by George Lucas, who took us off to do second unit shots. Eternal shots of running down corridors, running back up the corridors towards camera, crossing at the end one way, and then crossing back the other way, then going bing, 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 so they knew when, on the soundtrack, when to put in the, uh, the, the actual shot and um, no wonder we didn't hear anything <laughs> we never knew what we were supposed to be shooting at so shooting up here shooting back there and yes people did run into stanchions and uh, scaffolding like, like the famous one where in the new hope where the guy could hit his head on the, absolutely on the well the reason why we were all so blind was because of this uh, scene on the uh, carbon chamber because the cameraman was complaining constantly that he could see reflected back in our lenses the camera and crew so they were all trying to duck down and get underneath black blackout and they were absolutely dying of the heat they were dying of the heat we were absolutely dying of the heat so in the end some brilliant wardrobe guy decided that he could do something about it and in a stand down moment took all our helmets away and returned about 15 minutes later and he polished off all the lenses with Brasso nothing reflected and we couldn't see a thing and of course we didn't have much padding in the helmets in those days either they were very strange shaped they were ovoid but from side to side not front to back so you put you turn it sideways to put it on and then you turn it and the, the front sort of sloped out slightly where the grin was, yeah. like the grill, sloped out and that sort of rested on your nose. But as you started running or turning to look, the whole thing used to swing round. And you'd sometimes get stormtroopers at cut with their helmets completely turned around 180 degrees. So it was all a bit fastball, really. So, oh, going from the heat, did you, you say you were a snowtrooper? That was that was just as bad. The reason I say it's just as bad, they used oil cloth for the lower section of the helmet, covering our mouths and right over our necks, joining well not joining, but overlapping onto our chests. So we were completely enclosed inside this plastic on plastic helmet. And the set, uh, the, the tunnels were plywood construction in Pinewood, and then they were sprayed off with heavy concentrations of sea salt water which was then dried off so that the snow that you see the ice is actually salt and it's loose salt on the ground too we'd all been in stormtrooper outfits where the armor had been chafing and cutting into us in the backs of the legs uh, backs of the knees everywhere crutch you name it and then we were going through the hot tunnels where the, the cold mist was once again hot steam vented into the tunnels 
this time saturated with salt getting into all our wounds. So a lot of the soundtrack, the guide track, couldn't ever be used because there was so much effing and blinding going on. <laughs> and people walking in very strange ways. <laughs> so it is pretty much true what they say about people on set and uh, more in the modern ones with um, the lightsabers where once you've got one of them in your hand you are making a sound oh, yes. of a lightsaber oh yes woof 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 <laughs> <laughs> they needed a soundtrack just a guide track so that they could put the sounds in at the right point which is why Dave Prowse had to voice every single line of Vader because they needed to have the guide guide vocal yeah. to match his in movements with Dave Krause with his broad West Country accent broad actually <laughs> broad enough but not that broad he's not really West, West Country he's Bristol yes he is isn't he he yeah. is and he's educated Bristol so he's not oh yeah I'm for Bristol Bristol he doesn't speak like that at all he's got quite a gentle accent but it is distinct yes now I've seen a documentary where they were talking to one of the cameras and they said he had a Scottish accent. Well, obviously, that's coming from an American, so... Oh, yes. Um. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, no, it's, def- it's definitely a Bristolian accent. Um, and, I mean, he'd done enough film by that time. Yeah. He's never been... spoken on camera. Oh, yes, he did. He did have a line, a line or two on one film. It might have been a carry-on film where he was a yokel. Georgian yokel and he had a couple of lines to say then which was fine with his accent but when he was uh, Frankenstein's monster he hadn't got a thing to say I think they even dubbed his voiceover when he did the Green Cross Code Man as well Uh, yes I think they well actually I think he did dub his own voiceover there Um, I think that was just pure process work so have you worked on I've I've appeared in over 500 films 500 yeah wow well my first professional engagement of any sort in the entertainment business was when I was 10 and I sang at Winston Churchill's funeral really? yes I was a little chorister sweet and innocent in those days not for very long <laughs> but I was um, and then I did drama school I went on to do theatre I did musical on theatre um, I did quite a few TV shows um, at one point I had my own radio show in Iceland of all places <laughs> which was me singing and um, then I decided not to carry on with acting I went instead and started to train as a tailor and found myself in the Royal National Theatre where I did my tailoring uh, guild exams um, and that led me into designing and I did a bit of acting along the way as well and then finally when I did Return of the Jedi that was the last time I actually was employed to speak on camera because the very next day after it I was in Wales shooting on another picture as the costume designer with the actor to whom I delivered the lines the day before as the first person I had to dress and it was a, t- it was a total WTF moment <laughs> And Collie, that's who it was, yeah. So since then I've done another 54 films as a designer, and uh, now I'm quite happily retired doing conventions. It must be uh, 
quite exciting well it is because I'm a nobody I'm a, I'm a very very small part very small part from the Star Wars and only one of those parts do I actually speak to camera and luckily my face isn't covered by a rubber head or a mask so I'm, I get to be seen in a Star Wars film and I also have the distinction of being the only Star Wars actor who doesn't have a character name so you were just an officer? I am the Imperial Bridge Officer Executor, which is the name of the ship. Or if you go to Wikipedia, I'm the unidentified Imperial Officer <laughs> Executor. <laughs> have you noticed that most of the officers on board, any of the um, Imperial fleet, have got British accents, they're all English. Because George Lucas wanted that. He wanted that because he wanted to be foreign from the goodies who all had American accents. Apart from I guess. Yeah. But then he was... Uh, a droid, so... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Didn't matter. <laughs> so there was that distinction. Um, but it did happen that uh, I should have been voiced over, but I wasn't in the end. They used my, my voice. Because it was late, very late casting. I wasn't supposed to do that part. I literally was in the studio to sign up for my next, my next picture. And... Uh, Dave Tomlin, the first AD, spotted me, hastened me over and said, please do us a huge favour, because the actor they engaged turned out to have a stammer and a stutter. And they spent the entire morning, 30-odd takes, and they hadn't managed to say the line once without stammering and stuttering. So they couldn't, they couldn't overlay a voice on that because they could see him go, like this, nodding away like mad. Poor man. I guess uh, if you were dealing with someone like Vader, you'd be pretty scared if they'd appro- if it approached you. So I could see that. I I had I wasn't supposed to be there. I didn't know what the scene was. They gave me a line of script on a page by itself, which I had to sign for. Secret act. Yeah. yeah. They paraded me around the outside edge of the studio, shouting the line at top level, staccato and fast as possible, until I finally came on set and Richard Martin said, yeah, that's fine. So I did one take and that was it. I'm under the impression that um, George Lucas was quite... Um reticent speaker yeah he, his direction nice was do it better do it faster no his direction most of the time was do it again <laughs> that was as close as you got to a direction most of the time especially to us as stormtroopers if you wanted to run down the corridor you ran down the corridor you asked if you wanted to do on the left or the right you would never answer just said just do it again just do it again just do it again 30, 40 times and then you turn to the, the uh, continuity woman and say print number two and four you go <sighs> exhausted sweat pouring out now you've got to go back into that horrible set again Yeah. and then you say okay we'll do it all again running towards the camera do it again do it again just do it again <laughs> So and in like, the end, we, all, we were all sarcastic. We'd get to the end, and before he'd say cut, we'd say, do it again! <laughs> so what was it 
like dealing or working with some of them. You know, you must have had some of the, the big characters on the set at the time when you were there. Well, in that particular scene on the carbonite chamber, I was working with all the principals. Yeah. So they were all fine. The only one who was ever at all reticent to mix was Harrison Ford. I've heard this. Everybody else stayed on set all the time. He had a relaxation cabin in the corner. Because once again, they had to keep the, the doors closed, so he had a cabin inside. And he invariably, unless it was a, a new setup, he'd invariably go and sit in there. He didn't mix with people. Because Harrison doesn't do the con- uh, convention scene, does he? Not, not happily, no. He'll do the big, big ones because they pay an awful lot of money. A huge appearance fee and they fly him in his first class and first class hotel and it's all cash in hand. <laughs> Shouldn't have said that in Land Revenue. But there you go. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just admiring some of your patch bags. They are brilliant because you're. Well, this one is a present. This was sent to me by a member of the 501st in North Carolina. His name is Todd Lacey, and he's a really nice guy. Um, this is, uh, I think, this is uh, Carolina. Yeah, Carolina Garrison. Well, that one, of course, is the generic one. Yeah, the 501st. And then that's been in, uh, embroidered over the top. Take it. Such an emotional story. Just just looking at the, the R2 patch there, it's such a, a moving story. I think all of us uh, are moved by that. I, I support them when I can. I mean, I buy the badges and buy some patches. I swap them off with other people all the time. I don't collect them as such, but I keep swapping them around. <laughs> because it gets into other people's hands and, and spreads the love, as it were. And Pam Rose is a huge collector of patches. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Miss Patch Queen, 2015. So uh, she also supports the uh, Alvin and everything he does. And so it's, it's a pleasure and um, it's very rewarding doing charity work for Fiverr First. You must have been involved with um, the full stuff. Yes. Yeah. Well, what's that like to deal with? Cause... Well, I did the very first one of those. Yeah. Um, Pam and myself um, and Warwick Davis, I think, and maybe one or two others there. And that was fascinating. Um, I had, in my childhood, I had deaf friends, so I learnt sign language. I did too. So that was useful to me. I was very rusty with it, but it was useful to me for Field Force Day. Um, but also meeting the deaf, dumb and blind who came and, and to give them permission to touch you to imagine your face through touch etc and then watching their expressions when they encountered R2-D2 or C-3PO or some honey monster or whatever it was it was wonderful because it's pure it's truly pure innocent um, Excitement. It's wonderful to watch. Everybody I've spoken to are involved in either the convention scene or the um, costume, like, like the Final First or the Joker Squad or yeah. whoever. The one convention that they talk about the most is Phil the Force Day. And um, I've been in touch with JJ, the 
the organiser, yeah. and um, it's allowing us to oh, cover it this year. Because so. he has some really, really nice people who come every year. Um, some of them are, are terminally ill, um, but they're wonderful, wonderful people, all of them. Yeah. You'll get some great, great interviews there. Well, see, he was interested in getting us along because we're involved uh, with Stoke Mandeville Stadium and the, the paraplegic uh, yes. uh, games. And, uh, I've been involved with that for a long time. Mm-hmm. I used to be in the Red Cross for 15 years. So I used to be, when I say a runner, I don't mean competing. I was in between places and yeah, yeah. stuff. Um, so for me, it's quite an emotional thing to be involved in. So to be involved in Field of Force as well would be an absolute honour. It is, it is. And it's extraordinary to watch the, the hand signing, hand to hand signing. It's incredibly fast and very, very accurate. It's wonderful. And you get three or four signers there interpreting for all these guys and girls. And they all have a different style. And yet, and yet. The people who are having the, the interpreting done for them, they understand whoever it is, whatever style they're using. It's amazing. Um, You'll be in floods of tears. I think it will be, actually. Uh, the more I hear from people about it, the more I'm looking forward to being there. Well, I, I, I love doing charity things. I'm very fortunate. I've had a fortunate, charmed life. I've... I've recent years I've had a lot of illness and I've come through it and I'm still going strong so I, I enjoy going to hospitals I go along with some of the people um, from different squads occasionally when asked and go and entertain the children so I used to be a singer so I can sing for the kids and get them all to join in and clap their hands wow, yeah that's awesome it's, um, it's wonderful so how many sort of conventions of this kind of build have you been to? Ooh, well, the first one I got pulled into was in 2009, and I suppose since then I must have done 90 or 100, and this year alone I've got 40. And that's all over the world, is it? It's all over the world, yes. I took one at 4.30 this morning from Portugal. For February next year. <laughs> well, so yes, I'm all over the place. You've got work coming in until then, at least. <laughs> well, I, I don't count on it as a as a, a living. I'm lucky. I have a pension. I'm a pensionable age. I have my own house, and I have no responsibilities. So for me, I do a lot of this to raise money for charities. On my table at the moment. I've got a charity collection box for I support cosplay. Cosplay, all these guys who dress up um, in whatever character it may be. It seems to be that a lot of them, and I do mean a lot of them, come out with having ADHD. Somewhere on the spectrum of Asperger's. And nobody understands why, but they are attracted to it. And they get bullied incredibly badly. And some people get quite... I mean, some people in their 30s, 40s, even 50s are driven to the point of trying suicide. It's upsetting. It really is upsetting because I was bullied when I was at school. Uh, to a degree that... I mean, I was held down and had fire extinguishers fired in my face and all kinds of things. So I can relate to it. Mm-hmm. Um, 
when I used to travel to work, not too long ago actually, there was a young lad who had a spiritualist, she used to travel on the same journey as me, yeah. and he got picked on in the and I stood up for him. Yeah. And um, I got a little bit of flat for that myself, I got a bit of comeback from these kids. It's always well. different to put yourself out there, that's the problem. Yeah. Um, you become a target yourself. But he, he cottoned on to me after that point. And if he sees me, he'll come and talk to me. Yeah. Because I helped him. Yeah. So, and that's always good to know that somebody... Well, it's the strangeness, the otherness of these people that scare kids and teenagers. They're scared of it. They don't see that they're scared. They think they're just averse to it. But in actual fact, they're frightened of it because they don't understand it. Yeah. So... Although this may to some people seem like a, an unimportant cause, to me it's very important. Yeah, so I support is. them. I've been made their ambassador, along with Chris Barry and Ross Mallon. I put some money in um, Chris's box earlier, actually, when I spoke to Chris. Yeah. Um, and I will be promoting them. Please do. It's a, it's a well worthwhile cause, and they've got a good website. And uh, if they can get you in, interested in helping them. If you're going to a convention and you've, you've seen everything you want to, you could still help them by going around with a bucket. Every little helps. We'll keep that. Uh, I'll gift you one of their buttons as well. Thank you. <laughs> to show you're a supporter. He never had a figure made of him, an action figure. And um, when he went around to the conventions and things, he said to that to people, they actually made a you know the backing boards that go on the the blister packs for the figures yeah they, mm-hmm. they actually made one for him and it looks like the one that you would get in the shops and he was so taken aback by it um he has become a um honorary member of the 501st legion and he actually gave me a patch uh with him as the imperial officer that he played and a stormtrooper on it and it just says Alan Fling, 501st, on a remember. And on the back is a little sticker, with, and it says, with best wishes from Alan Fling. I said to him, I saw, I saw the patch there, and I said, I, I, I'll purchase one of those off you. And he said, no, 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 I'll gift you it. I'll, I'll give you one for free. And I said, oh, you really shouldn't, Alan. I said, I'll tell you what. I said, give me your address, <laughs> and I'll send you one of our patches <laughs> in return. Um and um, he's recently sent me back a picture of him with it on a t-shirt. So um, he'll be going in the honorary uh, crew member page as well. Blast off into the podosphere with TGP Nominal. I spoke to a, another guy called Ron Hone. Now, Ron has done so much through the Star Wars sagas. He built some of the original R2 units. He was involved in the pyrotechnics. He was involved in the modelling, the sculpturing, the carpentry. The <laughs> He's done it all. And, uh, yeah, he was a really, really interesting guy to talk to. Okay, once again, we're here at uh, Wickham Comic Con 2015. And with me, I have Ron Hone now. Ron-
John, you're, you've been involved with the, uh, the Star Wars movies, haven't you? Yeah, so we're not on the first one, but on, the, on the Return of the Jedi, Empire Strikes Back. Um, I was in charge of making, fabricating the robots and uh, and all the other ro- and the other robots and bits and pieces. Very interesting, very very interesting movie. So it's not not just the um, like the R two units and things. You, you've been involved with yeah the other robots as well. We and we was involved with uh, um, which was Yoda. End up as Yoda. We manufactured all the electronic bits that went inside it, and Stuart Preborn obviously had made the skin that goes on top of it. Yeah, yeah. And the idea of that was that they had a um, they had to carry it around in the backpack. Mark had to carry it around. So, so it had to be remote controlled for the eyes and the ears and the mouth. Was that the same? Um, well, so we say creature, as it were, but he had to do that somersault. He had to do a somersault at one point during that scene. Well, was it the one with the uh, the animatronics in it, or was that just a... Well, the animatronics one was used when they couldn't puppeteer it. Right. So there was always a combination of one or the other, so there was a mixture. Um, if I could, if I could uh, put their hand inside it, and, and do it that way they would do it obviously but if they couldn't they would, they'd use the radio control so whereabouts were you based when, when you were creating these um, uh, machines we were we were at Shepparton Studio yes no sorry we weren't no we, we ended up at Elstree Studio okay. Elstree Studio which now where we were is now a Tesco car park oh wow yeah so it's all gone it's a shame it's a shame it? it is a shame so, take us through some of the other um, things that you've created here. Well, I've always worked in special effects, so it's always a matter of different things on on every picture. I think I've only made about three robots in my life. Oh, right. Uh, three types of robots. You couldn't specialise in robots, or you'd starve. So, so how did you get into uh, special effects? Accident, really. Yeah. Um, I used to do uh, engineering pattern making and next door to me, Jerry Anderson had a workshop and he was advertising for an electronic engineer. And, and I knew people who did work for Jerry Anderson and I wandered across there and said, oh, I wouldn't mind a job doing that. And he said, well, you want a pattern maker, which is all wood and plastics. He said, no, we want someone who does electronics. So I spoke to him and... Uh, he said, yes, you obviously know about electronics, you've got the job. And I said, sorry. And then I, I, he said to me one day, can you bring your pattern making tools in? We've got to make models. I said, no, I'm not making any more models. He said, well, you either do it or you leave. And it was a joke, but I had to do model making as well. So it all, you have to do everything. Well, that's a good thing, though, isn't it? Because, I mean, in some trades, it's like one man, one job, isn't it? And then... When one of the first films I worked on with uh, was this UFO. Yeah, I fell in love with her. But. I can understand that. <laughs> she was a lovely artist. Um, and uh, of course, a, a little time after that, Jerry didn't do any more movies. He, he, I don't know what happened. He said it was financial trouble with whatever. And um, and then he did. Then two or three years later, he did Space 99 with Pamela. Yeah, yeah. So we've kept him friends all over the years. So you, you worked on that as well? No, I didn't. No. Oh, right. I, I, 
time there was not much in the movie industry and I was working outside still making model cars. <laughs> so yeah, the film industry's been up and down, but for the last 20 years it's been quite good. And so, so you can put your hands very much. I'm afraid you you have to be what you have to be fairly much though. You have to be used to doing quite a lot of things. You can't just specialise in one. Although it is getting now to the stage when you have to have a, if you weld, you have to have a welder's certificate. So what it does, it makes people just weld. Uh, or you or you just do see, uh, work on machinery, you know, lathes and things like that. So yes, it's, it's coming a little specialised now, which is a shame really. Yeah. Because in the old days, you used to go to a farm country and you just literally went through the dustbin to find bits to make things. But that's the beauty of a film like Star Wars, really, because it's got that used look about it, so you can just put stuff together and... Uh... Uh, with Star Wars, they did give us uh, quite an unlimited amount of money to produce these things, and they said they want them to work perfectly. And, and there was always three that went on the set, in case one broke down. Right. Uh, no, everything was interchangeable. Um, how things are today, I don't know. I've not worked on the latest Star Wars film. Yeah. This but is I think different they have a different, different idea how they do it now. Because they've um, it's kind of outsourced it now, haven't they? They've got... Because uh, the, the droids are now made by the, the guys at the um, R2 Builders Club. Yes, I heard that. Yeah. And I can't understand how you would use something that wasn't manufactured for a film... Yeah. Because you, it has to be specialised all the time. It has to be quickly changed. It has to everything interchangeable. You know, because it's, it costs thousands of pounds a minute to put on it, and you can't. And they want well. They never used to let you let you have any time. That you'd be off. It'd be off the set. So how how long did it take you to to build some of these things? How long? How long did it take you to to build some of these things? Um, some of it was fabricated by other companies, and we all put it together. Right. It was about, I suppose, about a year on the major ones, and then a lot of it went on to the other film because the most of the engineering work had been done. Oh, that made it a lot they, easier. They were refurbished and, and new electronics put in. Yeah. I mean, the, the people who worked, the people who worked on them, on this one, for instance, that was me. He was a buyer. Yeah. He was an electronic engineer, and he was a, he was like a toolmaker. Okay. And there was other ones as well. But the, you had to have a group of people who worked on the. That's what they did. They worked on that and the, and the other robots. It was so, an interesting film. Did you have any situations where things didn't quite work as you, as you wanted them to? Or, you know, it, it worked when you um, did a practice run and then... I think because we uh, we tested them so much, it, we, we had very little problem with them. Very little problem. On the original film they did, they, they didn't have a lot of money 
and they, they built had aluminium shells and when the radio control was put in them they, they went berserk yeah I heard somewhere they kept getting interference from taxi firms and yeah things. that's right taxi would send it off in the wrong direction <laughs> so so then they had to be made in uh, fiberglass and the shells were the only aluminium part but then they were but but there was a gap between when uh, the radio control was getting more sophisticated because they called it the I think I heard somewhere they said it was the, the most expensive budget movie ever made. <laughs> <laughs> Could well be. But there, there again, you see, I, me, and, me and the guy who did this film, Brian Johnson, we did a never-ending story. And I spent a lot of money. I was in charge of the work, so I spent a lot of money making sure everything worked perfectly. Yeah. And it did. And we never had any problems. And then I was told at the end of which I spent too much money. But that film made a lot of money. It did. Then yeah. they made another film. It didn't make much money. No. Then they made another film. It was voted one of the worst films of life. So and you, there, is a, there is a point you can be too tight on a film. Yeah. Uh, so you say you've worked on things like Never Ending Story. Whatever, whatever movies have you worked on? Well, I'll say re- recent years was was Enemy at the Gate. And that was all explosion. So, um, the last biggest movie I suppose I worked on was uh, The Jupiter Ascending. Yeah, that's a big film. Yeah, uh, a few other bits and pieces. But mainly now I just do odds and sods really. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What's it like coming to events like this? Oh, I see lots of people I know and we have a look have a laugh and a chat. It, I suppose it's really good to, to meet up with these people again they haven't seen them for a while. And, yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And it's quite amazing enthusiasm from a lot of youngsters who love it. And they're very interested on how the old films were made rather than all the CGI. I think it, the, we went to Japan, me and a friend, and, uh, and all the Japanese people there know how to do it with CGI with the computers but they weren't quite sure how it was done what it was called on what way it was a completely different art altogether wasn't it yeah yeah but I think it shows because I, I prefer the, the actual physical effects to, to the CGI yeah it's more fun I think watching I always say when you watch that one film I never worked on that one but where you see the card where with the broken bridge and it twists around yep, yep. I mean it was done for real now you put a car in the air, little models, film it and put can, it anywhere. You can tell that it's, 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 even though the effects, the, the, the CGI is pretty spot on, mm. the realism of it disappears. A lot of things the CGI do, you, you couldn't possibly do, do normally, you know, or the old fashioned way. You have to accept that. There are things that they do that you, you've got to accept. I think it's at the end of the day it's still fantasy, isn't it? But what annoys us sometimes we see we see movies we've worked on, we see explosions and things and they see they superimpose them on another film. So it's your work that somebody else has taken the, yeah. the credit for it. Oh well, yeah, well they uh, hand it around I like, do. I don't know. Blimey. And uh, yeah, it, it just makes me feel humble talking to these guys because they were there at the start. And if it wasn't for their skills, the, the original film would not have looked half as good as as it did. Oh no! Especially when Lucas has said that they basically had to come up with just about everything on their own. 
most of the technology to do what they did didn't exist before them. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's just amazing that these people are approachable. As a fan, it, it really does make you feel good um, going to these events. And for for our first one, I, th- I think we, we did quite well. Yeah, <laughs> I just wish I could have been there. <laughs> mm, not space-related, but uh, looks like uh, Patrick McNee's dead. Oh, man. Died at the age of 93 at his home in California. Yeah, it's sad, actually, because he was uh, a legend, really. Um, oh, yeah. When it comes to well, the TV shows that he was involved in, I mean, he was in the Avengers, wasn't he? And that was mm-hmm. probably what he was most famous for, um, John yep, Steed. Over, over here, too. Um, with uh, Who would he have been with back in those days? That would have been Diana Rigg. Diana Rigg. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was other very strong female characters as well uh, over the years. Um, and he was also in the new Avengers as well, wasn't he? Which, uh, which uh, did you get that in the states? I don't know, to be honest. Um, yeah, it was a completely new team apart from John Steed, who was in charge of them all, and it oh. la- launched the careers of people like um, I don't know if you know her. Uh, oh, of course you do, uh, Joanna Lumley, who is in. Oh, uh, I know the name. Absolutely fabulous. Okay. Yeah, she plays Patsy in uh, Absolutely Fabulous. <laughs> but she uh, played one of these very strong karate-kicking uh, females in, in the new Avengers. Uh, nice. Oh, wow, he's <laughs> been an American citizen since 59. I did not know that. Yeah. Wow. He's one of these... We stole him from you. <laughs> there's a few <laughs> like that. I mean, there's... Um... Oh. Well, there are a bunch. I mean, John Cleese, Eric Idle, they're American citizens now, and... There's a lot of that going on. One of the guys that was in the Man from Uncle, uh, I can't remember his name. Oh wow! <laughs> um, Which they're remaking. Oh no! Yeah, I know. <laughs> so the the next interview was with a, a really lovely lady called Virginia Hay. Um, now she's been in quite a few different things. Um, she's an Australian lady. Um, and she talks about the, the different shows that she's been in. Um, and she's most famous uh, for a lot of people. She was in Farscape. She's pretty much been in every Australian program there is, which you probably don't get a lot of the Australian shows in, in America. We, no, not really. We have loads of them in, in, in the UK. And, yeah, she's a really interesting lady to talk to. Oh, I see who she was. Okay. Mm-hmm. I never really watched Farscape, but I know that character. So, yeah, this, this is Virginia Hay. Okay, once again, I'm at the uh, Wickham Comic Con 2015, and I'm with Virginia Hay. How are you doing? Great, thank you. How are you? Absolutely fine. It's been a brilliant day. Um, how, how have you been finding it? Fabulous. It's, uh, it's Gary's first convention. Yeah. Uh, here, anyway. I don't know if he's done shows before. I don't think he has, but he's been involved with them because of his involvement with the 501st Legion, uh, Stormtrooper Legion, so he's been to many of these events, so he knows how they work. I mean, it's incredible if it's his first event yeah. because this event was so tightly run, so brilliantly run, brilliantly marketed. You'd think he'd been doing this for the whole of his life, seriously. That's why I wondered whether he's actually done other events. But as he said, he worked for the uh, UK Garrison, or worked with the UK Garrison and uh, 501st before, so he knows how events are run. But um, he should be very proud of himself because it's been extraordinary. Busy as all hell. There was a time, first thing this morning, I thought, oh, 
bit quiet, and then all of a sudden, bang. Well, that's because the first people that they let in, well, first of all, it was just us setting up the tables. And then um, there was a, quite a few people, actually, but spread out were the early bird ticket holders. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, everyone else is outside lining up. And then at a certain time, I think it was about 11 or 11.30, the general admission was let in, and then bam! It was absolutely full blast yeah, from that moment. So, for people that are not familiar with your work, what have you been in? Oh, God, I don't know where to start. <laughs> Truly, so much. I'm not surprised that a lot of people are not familiar with my work because most of it's been in Australia. And a lot of it has been uh, shown over here over the years, but you wouldn't necessarily from the work unless you unless you saw me first got to know me in the, in the way I look and knew my name and then revisited a lot of the shows you'd go oh my god she's in this oh and she's in that oh and she's in this as well so I started off with uh, Mad Max um, Mad Max 2 oh, first of all I started off as a model and doing a lot of television commercials about 59 television commercials in Australia was my first acting job. After that was Prisoner, Cell Block H. Oh, wow. Then it was, uh, forgive me if I just keep spilling them off, um, there'll be a list, so <laughs> get ready. No then after um, Prisoner was Neighbours, and then it's just this long succession of um, E Street, Pacific Drive, Paradise Beach, Mussolini, um, I can't even remember half of them. Um, then uh, Castaway, then Bullet Down Under. You'd have to actually, you know what? Rather than me bore the death out of bore you all to death, have a look at my IMDb. That's probably the best page, and you can see. Then you'll be able to see what I've done and, and have a look at anyone who's interested, and then they can have a look at the various shows that they're familiar with. But really, lots. I mean, all of the. Aussie staples yeah, I've been in pretty much all of them we're pretty familiar with them in the UK yeah and quite a few films although I was more of a TV actor because back in the day and uh, this doesn't happen anymore but back in the day you either had to be a model or an actor and you can't do both you couldn't do both so okay so when you become an actor you've either got to be a TV actor or a film actor you weren't allowed to do both so it wasn't considered appropriate so if you started to do film you'd have to stop doing TV if you were doing TV you wouldn't be put up for film whereas these days anything goes I mean the bigger actors can now even the biggest ones can do television commercials modelling um, fashion shoots uh, they can do film and uh, I mean every, anything and everything but back in the day it was very especially in Australia they were very um, particular yeah. yeah would be a polite word they were very very particular about who did what in each country the answer is different as to what is what I'm recognisable for in America it's different from England which is different from Australia in Australia it's a whole slew of shows, TV commercials, chat shows, presenter work, modelling. In England it would probably be, although I was in um, Neighbours and Home and Away, which are the two stables in prison, Cell Block Age, um, the ones that I'm best known for in the UK would be James 
James Bond, even though it was a tiny role in the beginning of my career, but still, I'm a Bond girl, and that can never be taken away from no, me. That, that, is, that is an accolade. Itself. I know, it's brilliant, I love it. So, Bond girl, and um, I played an iconic role in, uh, iconic character in Farscape, uh, and of course, Mad Max, the three. Mad Max, James Bond, Farscape. So... Obviously, being in Mad Max, worked with Mel Gibson. What was he like to be around? Oh, lovely. He was gorgeous, still is gorgeous as far as I'm concerned. Um, And the sweetest man alive and married with a couple of kids, I think, at that stage. I think he had two with Robin at that stage. He went on to have so many, seven or something. Uh, Really great guy, guy, Christian, funny... We screamed with laughter when we weren't working because when you're working on a film set it's serious everyone wants everyone imagines it's fun and one of the most it's probably going to be one of your questions what have I been asked most in my whole career the one question that everybody always asks me is how much fun was it working on whatever it is X, Y, Z because what the general public see is fun it's edited there's music there's emotion there's the story the special effects the, the the comedy or whatever whatever it might be you know the drama oh, tremendous but for every film set that you work on as, as a professional actor not an amateur actor but a professional actor it's a finely honed machine and it's all timed and it's, it's, I always liken it to a building site and there's a foreman on a building site that says hurry up everybody we have to get the walls built so that we can put the roof on and the windows need to come in by Friday if we don't get the walls completed by today we'll be off schedule there's, there's going to be rain in three days time come on hurry up hurry up hurry up it's like that on a film set. You have a first assistant director who's like the foreman, who's saying, right, everybody, please be quiet. We're about to shoot. Or he might say, we've got uh, 45 pages of dialogue to shoot today. I need everybody's full concentration. We're going into the kitchen uh, to do all of the wherever it is, whatever uh, location you're going into. Following that, everyone's going to be in their vehicles. We're going over to location number three by two o'clock. We need to be at location number four at um, 3.30, location number five at five o'clock, well, you know, things like that. So it's all timed out and you have to, you know, it's very serious process. It's like, it's like any job where, let's say you work in an office at the bank, you're not going to start throwing paper planes in the office and having a giggle and, and, and playing jokes and, you know, sticking your tongue out behind the, the, the teller's head while he's talking to a customer. You know, that kind, those sorts of pranks and silliness don't go on in everyday business. They can't. You'd be sacked. Same on a film set. You can't. You have to do your job. So everybody is always on their best behavior when they're working on a film set as an actor. And um, there's very little fun to be had except for downtime. It's like at lunchtime you might have a little have time for a bit of a giggle or maybe in the makeup room if there's a little bit of extra time. But um, anyway, getting back to Mel, he's the sweetest guy you could ever meet. I absolutely love him and I think it's disgusting. He is getting a raw deal, I think. It's disgraceful how the whole world has jumped on the bandwagon like sheep, all following 
each other, sniffing each other's bums, is the way I see it, yep. all following each other to, um, to kick this man for no reason whatsoever. And how would you feel, uh, whenever people are nasty about him, I say, okay, have you ever disgraced yourself in any way? Have you ever been drunk and, and acted disgracefully? Well, yeah, of course. Everybody has, probably thousands of times. How many people have had a, a cell phone on them? they've been at their worst state and someone egging them on to be worse and then splash that all over the world on social media and then on top of that everyone wants to go in and then start kicking him you should be all ashamed of yourselves leave the poor guy alone yeah, he I'm fell off the wagon leave him alone I agree sorry I agree that's it totally. yeah I've got a fair play for you to say that I will I will defend him because he's a great guy and the thing is that I'm not going to name any names, but you have all of these actors who are drunk and drugged up for their whole careers, shaming themselves, cheating on their wives and girlfriends, falling out of nightclubs, photographed every day doing something terrible, notoriously late, notoriously on drugs, Mm -hmm. their whole careers. And here's Mel, who was squeaky clean and one of the most loved actors in the world for 35 years. Suddenly, he falls down on his face and everyone jumps in to kick him in the head. You should all be ashamed of yourselves. I agree, totally. That's my take. Anyway. So, going back to... Because uh, you were in uh, The Living Daylights, weren't you? Hmm. So, who was James Bond in that one? That was the beard. Timothy Dalton. Dalton. Now, he's not always been everybody's favourite. It's, it's a personal choice. But he is, he is, a, he is definitely Bond material. That's why he was picked in Bond. Oh, sure. Um, and, actually, out of his films, that's probably my favourite of the Bond films that he, that he made anyway. successful film, TV show, band, whatever you know, whatever it might be, whatever genre, uh, if it's massively successful and iconic, then yeah, it's the same. It's it is sort of like being in a in this club of super talented alien beings. It's because you you just don't see that sort of talent. It's Barbara Broccoli is really incredible for having the knack of selecting um, 
an ensemble of actors to put into each of her Bond films and just to have it to know to have the instinct to know that it's all going to gel and work for her I mean it's really incredible and the the thing that really makes it for me of Bond girls in particular is they are very very strong independent women and that is not always oh you mean they're depicted as yeah well they're depicted as sex symbols really and a lot of them are can handle themselves and look after themselves. And, and that's, that's a really yeah, think, positive thing to, to Yeah, portray. some of them, yeah, but I think um, in the, there was um, the Avengers. When was the Avengers? Is that 19 with... Um, uh, late 60s. Late 60s with... Um, um, what's his name? Uh, Patrick. Patrick, Patrick Midney. Patrick Midney and Diana Reid. Diana Reid. that was... And she, I think, I could be wrong, I probably, I probably am wrong, but uh, I think she was one of the first strong ladies. Yeah. Or was Ursula Andres one of the first strong ladies in, Actually, in Bond? might be right there because... Or Barbarella. Again, Jane I don't know. I'd, I'd, I'd love to. Yeah, you should, you should do a podcast on, you know, the strong women of film and TV and try and figure out who was the first. It probably goes way. Way, way back. Probably Catherine Hepburn played one of the first uh, strong ladies. Oh, actually, I think she did when she played, um, didn't she play a journalist? And uh, uh, I can't even think of the name of the film, but I'm sure I remember. There's probably people screaming at the (laughs) internet now going, it's this, it's Golf by Golf Friday or something, whatever the uh, film was. But but even way back then, you know, in the 40s, uh, there were women playing roles against type, you know, that should have been a male role and in fact was a... You just go back to the history, uh, you see the story... I wish they'd turn this disco music down. It is a bit bit of a pain, but... um, In history, you've got, like, uh, the medieval times where they portray the the damsel in distress and all that. If you look at the real stories behind these women, they weren't damsels in distress. When their husband, the king or whatever, was out at war in whatever nation they were looking after that castle they were keeping keeping yeah, but, it all together but that's pretty obvious because women are just uh, I don't know whose idea it was that women are pathetic and can't think have no brains and are just are just pretty things that waft around barefooted um, women are vital bright energetic creative human beings I mean there's no reason why they can't defend their you know their uh, tent in the in the back in the old days they, they obviously they did you know I think women were a lot more powerful hundreds and or maybe thousands of years ago it was someone's idea to kind of um, to, to push men forward and to push women back along the way I'm not quite sure when that happened exactly but they back in the day the women used to be the leaders and the priests and the the warriors, um, and then it changed somehow. In, in British history, one of the most strongest women in history is Boudicca or Boudicca. And look at Joan of Arc, you know. True, very true. So it's no, it's women are strong. We are, I mean, we, we've got muscles and skeletons and energy and brains, and you know, we are strong.
wrong people. But as far getting back to the bond, though, um, a lot of the girls were in there just for titillation, really, in their bikinis and in my role as well, and just pretty girls. But uh, some of the role, some of the female roles were uh, really. Um, uh, were warriors as well in yeah. Bond yeah. and I think you had a little bit of a mixture like a healthy mixture of uh, role playing for women in Bond sure, I, I think it's very important to, to have those kind of roles because um, there's one thing we've always tried to promote on, on the podcast as being as we're not just a science fiction but a science fact that we're, we're trying to endorse the sciences for, for girls to get involved in the sciences the next big scientist or, or there whatever. already are lots yeah. of women at university and there always has been you know that's right I think it's a myth that women are not smart enough to it's well see the childbearing it, that kind of gets in, it's clouds things and confuses things because if you choose to be a mum and have kids it's more difficult to to then choose a more scientific role and become a scientist or a doctor or, you know, and have a really serious um, role in life. It is a little bit difficult. I think um, women who want to be mums um, should be allowed to do exactly that. And if they want to study on the side, then they should be allowed to do that. And if they're able to work part-time and um, get involved in science or science fiction or whatever, or chemistry or whatever it is that they might... You were talking about uh, science fiction, science fact. Um, and encouraging women to get more involved in, in all that. But, you know, they sure they can along the way as well. But it's just... It's, it, it is a fact that it is a little bit more difficult when you have children. It's just a little bit more difficult to study. I've got a next-door neighbour who's a district nurse and she's doing her master's degree now. And it is, it's, it's difficult for her. It, it's more difficult for her because she's got three children than it would be for me. And I've got no children. So it does present some complications, but it's not impossible. I know you've been pretty excited about coming today. Oh, yeah, for sure. I've been really looking forward to it because Gary's put a lot of hard work and sweat and love into this one. And, um, and I really admire the organisers when they... They all put their heart and soul into every single... doesn't matter how small or how large the events are. I love doing them. It's what I do. I do so many. In the, in the, in the season, I do almost one every week. I, I honestly love it. And I really genuinely adore people. I think if you're not a people person, you'll do very badly at conventions and you'll never be asked back. So you've got to be naturally a people person because you get tired. I'm tired now. But... If now I had, um, you know, if we were still open and we had a lot of people coming to the table, I'd still want to entertain them and whatever each person needed, a special treatment, you know, I'd give them whatever they, they needed to make them feel comfortable and happy. And you, and if it's not natural in you, you can't keep that up when you get tired by the end of the day. So all of the actors at conventions who are repeat actors, they're actors that are on the circuit a lot, they're all people who are really genuinely, who genuinely love other people and who are very, very good with um, uh, with the fans and, and who the fans really enjoy. 
enjoy yeah. being with you. So. I've noticed that today that yeah. everybody I've spoken to has been so approachable. Oh yeah, they've really. They've been great. The salt of the earth, really nice people. Well, thanks again. You're welcome. That's one of the things we have been trying to. Uh, endorse on the show isn't it John really it's uh, mm-hmm. getting l- girls and women into sciences and uh, being what they want to be so the uh, the next person I spoke to is uh, a lovely young lady called Pixie Lenotte now I'm not going to say much about her um, I'm gonna, just going to play the clip in and you will know what she does when we start talking so we're back again at uh, Wickham Comic Con uh, 2015 and I'm here with Pixie Lenox. What would people know you from? Um, they might know me from, well, mainly Game of Thrones and then um, I did a bit of The Devil Inside and this year on ITV I was in Get Your Act Together. Um, yeah. so, so basically uh, most people then would know you from Game of Thrones. Yeah, people at this event probably from Game of Thrones, yeah. So... How can I put this? Explain to the to the listener what special skills you have. Um, I'm a contortionist, so I used to do gymnastics as a kid, and then I went to a circus school and trained really hard on my flexibility and became a contortionist. So I've got like a really um, really flexible back. Um, yes, I've, I've noticed that. <laughs> Um, so, did you ever feel about um, taking on gymnastics as a, you know, either going to the Olympics or something like that? When you uh, not really, no. I didn't. I just did it as a hobby, and then I really liked performing, so I went into circus instead. Yeah. So, from an early age, you noticed that you could. Uh, yeah, yeah. I always knew that I was like the most flexible kid in the class. Yeah. So, so are you are you double jointed at all? Uh, no. Some of the positions you get yourself oh, into. thank you. Can you do the like uh, the girl in the box and all that kind of thing? Well, I do, I've done loads of commercials and music videos where I've had to get in boxes and things, but I mean it's not really what I do. What I do is acrobatic and gymnastic kind of contortion. Mm-hmm. It's more about balance and strength and flexibility. Not really getting in small spaces, but I can get in small spaces. But I'm pretty sure it's mainly I'm small, but you, um, height-wise, you were good. Yeah, I'm tiny. <laughs> but in a nice way. <laughs> um, so, you say you've, you've done commercials and things. Is that every, everywhere? So, you've been sort of... Um, I've, done lo- I've done loads and loads of TV, like, commercials, so TV commercials and music videos, yeah. Yeah, so. um, yeah loads of stuff like that. So, do. do you mainly do them here and it, it gets sent um, abroad or...? or I've seen a couple that you've been in. Oh, really? Um, because, um, well, mainly because I recognised your face because, uh, from something, and when I looked on your profile, but, um, 
because you've got so much content on your... I've been in loads and loads of random stuff, yeah. Well, it's a unique... I've been doing it for a while. A unique skill, that's why. Yeah, there's so... not many people in England anyway that do it. It's not much of a culture to do it. So the, the programme that you were talking about, I can't remember what you said it was called now, the one... Uh... Get your act together. Yeah, yeah, that's the one with Steve... the most recent one. Steve, so... Steve Mulholland, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. 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 So you were actually... Were you actually training people to actually... I was training Roxy Shahidi from Emmerdale to be a contortionist and then we did an act together. So it showed like the training process and the performance at the end. So what was that like actually being a, a mentor or a tutor for someone? I coach a lot of gymnastics contortion. So, um, so yeah, it's quite, quite normal for me. Oh, right. Yeah. I didn't realise you, did, you actually teach people as well. Yeah. Brilliant. So, yeah, thanks for talking with us. That's right. Thank you very much for having me. Okay. Nice to meet you. So, yeah, that was Pixie Lenot. She was amazing. My spine would shatter if I attempted any of the things that she's done. Um, yeah, she is pretty flexible. Holy cow! <laughs> When I saw her actually doing them when she was there, because she, she was posing for people, so you could have your photograph taken with her, and I thought, oh my God, how does she get her leg up that high? Wow. But then she does the... Uh, I've got a brilliant picture of her, actually, that I'm going to put in the show notes, where she's actually doing a kind of a crab, actually on the throne from Game of Thrones. Huh. Yeah, that's that's going in the show notes. But it was great to meet her. And uh, as you can probably tell, she got quite a lot of um, attention <laughs> while she was there. Steady. <laughs> The last person that I interviewed, um, last and not least, is the organiser of the event, Gary Cole. All the way through the day, everyone I spoke to said what a wonderful job he's done considering it's his first ever event that he's organised. This is what Gary had to say. So here we are once again at Wickham Comic Con 2015 and I'm here with the organiser of the day. That's Gary Cole, how are you doing? tired but good so how long have you been on the go I was up at five this morning oh. I've had about five hours sleep uh, and that's it basically so um, how did you get the the feel to uh, start an event like this well I'm a stormtrooper with the UK garrison uh, I've been to a few of these sort of events with them as a stormtrooper and then literally it was just last November just wondered if I could do a Comic Con and I thought well might as well try and do it in Wickham uh, long story short it was my daughter that sort of came up with the idea of holding it here at uh, the student union just purely because I used to DJ in here uh, and I know the I know the venue manager so it was sort of an easy option really to be honest Yeah. Um, again kind of long story short I set up a group on Facebook uh, within two days it had over 600 members mm-hmm. uh, and then from there I thought well, I'll try and set an event up obviously contacted the venue he confirmed it uh, again long story short put tickets on sale online in January the 2nd and they were sold out middle of March and it literally it's just taken off unbelievably quick pretty impressive unbelievable literally um, unbelievable because well, obviously nobody knew how it was going to turn out no, today absolutely no. and um, to be honest with you it's been an amazing day yeah I'm I'm 
overwhelmed even today still you know and the build up to it I've been so nervous about it thinking oh my god if the weather's crap and you know whatever else but genuinely the weather's been fine people have turned up that we're expecting to be here I think the people have, you know the, the general public that have been in have enjoyed it uh, the signers have certainly enjoyed themselves uh, all the traders I think have done well as well so yeah I, th- yeah, I think generally all round it's not been a bad day no, it's, been, it's been pretty good I mean everybody that I've approached today have been so welcoming yeah so and that is the thing you know we, it was a case of trying to promote a sort of family friendly event and it has been there's been plenty of kids in here and you know they've all enjoyed it I think seeing the UK garrison floating around and the cyber legion they've been around as well so yeah it's, it's been worth it I think definitely and it's always good especially with when you've got the smaller kids coming in um, the next generation yeah, of um, Star Wars fans yeah um, and it probably means to you the same as it means to yeah, you. Yeah, well, I, I mean, my kids are here. My, my, my daughter, she's around somewhere. Um, my 10-year-old son and my little two-year-old, nearly old son, he, he's around in his buggy. But, yeah, no, it's been nice, obviously, they can come down as well. So, you know, and it's, it's not extortionate like you pay at other conventions. And no, no, it's that with the food. Good. The, the price of and the food. And that's what we is... thought. We thought there's no point in overcharging on food. It's, you know... Who's going to pay five pounds for a slice of pizza? That's it. Who wants to pay five pounds for a slice of pizza? It's just not worth it at the end of the day. And had it not been for certain restrictions, I'd have probably had food bans and stuff set up outside, but wasn't allowed to, you know. But no, generally, yeah, I think with the food that the, the union themselves have laid on and mm-hmm. what we've managed to supply for the, the signers and the costumers that have been in, um, yeah, I think everyone's enjoyed it really. Because so. the venue's ideal because you had pretty much everything here that you need. So. Yeah. So it was literally a case of come in, set it up, see how it goes, and yeah, luckily, I think it's gone pretty well. Okay? So yeah, it's been, it's been good. It's been good. Brilliant. So, plans now? Uh, I'm already starting next year's. <laughs> uh, I've already provisionally booked a venue, but obviously I can't confirm that until they get back to me in the next matter of weeks. Uh, but it is a much, much bigger venue. Uh, so next year it'll be a similar sort of time. It will be beginning of June probably again next year. Okay. Uh, but it'll be over two days. So I'll be doing it over a Saturday and a Sunday. That'll be great. Um, more guests, more attractions, Q&A sessions, uh, hopefully some displays as well of some sort. Uh, you know, the obvious you know, guest signers and, and more traders again. But yeah. I mean, by that time, the episode seven will have been out Absolutely. for a while. So that'll be... Well, we did, have, we did originally have a guest on the, on the lineup from episode seven. Um, but due to other filming commitments, he had to pull out a couple of months ago now, actually, to be fair. Um, but, you know, managed to replace him and whatever. But it would have been nice, obviously, yeah, to have someone from episode seven. Um, as I don't think any other conventions in a minute have got anyone. But I could be wrong, don't quote me. Um, but yeah, certainly next year I'll, I'll definitely be looking to get someone from episode seven or at least a couple of people. Um, awesome. But yeah, yeah, roll on December in that case. I'm looking forward to that myself. Oh yeah. So yeah, yeah. I think we all have to be. Yeah, no, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And that and the spin-offs as well. So absolutely, uh, yeah, they're all coming up as well. So I don't quite know what to make of those yet, but I want to <laughs> get episode seven out of the way and see what happens basically. So yeah, I don't think he's going to let us down. I don't think no, so. I, I think he's, for the trailers I've seen, outstanding, <laughs> outstanding. Almost had a tear in my eye. I'm telling you. Oh, I did <laughs> genuinely yeah, I actually did grown man yeah Chewy we home and I was yeah, always that loving was, yeah. yeah hairs on the neck stood up in the arms that was it at the um, at Anaheim the, the moment they brought BB-8 out on the stage yeah. that was just it was just yeah unbelievable pure absolutely magic. unbelievable pure magic yeah um, did you actually get to go no sadly not but we've got on the raffle store I don't know if it's been one actually we had a t-shirt um, some people know the hip hop drinker 
that's uh, based in America. Yeah. yeah. Uh, he was actually funny enough. He, he's uh, from Oxford. Is he originally? Right. Yeah. He's on he's on my friends list, and I'm sort of in contact with him every now and then. But he he sent me an exclusive hip hop trooper T-shirt from the celebration in Anaheim, which you cannot get anywhere else. Wow. So I'm hoping someone has one that T-shirt because that was a that was yeah. I mean, it's, it's one, one of pretty you know, much of a one-off here anyway. That's but yeah, sure. that was where sort of one of the big surprises as well. Raffle. But yeah, I mean, generally, just overall, it's, it's been yeah, it's been a really good day so far. So. I mean, if you, if you want us to um, help promote the uh, one for next year, we'll yeah, no, absolutely, yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, I've spoken to all the traders; they're more than happy to come back next year. A lot of the signers are happy to come back next year. I think Cheryl Ferguson's tweeting now that she's enjoyed it that well, you know, that much or whatever. So, yeah, no, it's, it's been good. I'm pleased. I'm pleased. Awesome. Well, thanks for talking with me, Gary. No worries. Sounds like Gary had a great day, and, um, well, he wants to make it bigger and better next year. Yeah, good on him for doing so well on his first try. Yeah, um, and he's got other plans as well for other events and things. Um, He's actually now set up a a company called Empire Events. (laughs) (laughs) Fair play to him, I say. He's doing really well. Now, before we go, I just want to promote something that was mentioned, actually, in uh, the clip with uh, Alan Fling. There is the iCosplay charity. It's an anti-bullying campaign. It is becoming the official campaign or charity of TGP Nominal because I feel st- strongly about anti-bullying, mm-hmm. um, mainly because I was bullied uh, when I was at school. So I, I know uh, what some of these people are going through. Uh, probably not to a certain degree that some of them are. On the front page of the TGP Nominal website, you will find at the bottom a little icon uh, with the iCosplay logo on it. If you click on that, you'll be taken to the iCosplay website and um, you can find more information about them there. And I'm hoping to get um, one of the organisers of the charity on the show very soon so we can talk to her. Alan Fling has actually sent her an instant message um, saying that we'd like to speak with her. So I'm just going to play that by ear and hopefully uh, we'll bring you something more about the charity very soon. All right, sounds good. Spanhead Productions are a small independent sound recording company based in rural Hertfordshire. We specialise in creating content for all your podcasting needs, whether it be field recordings, fox pops, or capturing the atmosphere during social events. Editing is a very time-consuming job, so Spanhead Productions are on hand to take away some of the burden for you. Just advise us on how you'd like your content to sound, and we will do the rest. We can even help you design and manage a website for your podcast too. Visit us now, spanheadproductions.com. Weebly.com. That's spamheadproductions.weebly.com. Well, it's that time again, John. It's that time, it is. So, um, thanks again for being with us on the show. Uh, thanks again for putting up with me. <laughs> uh, wouldn't be the same without you. <laughs> It'd probably be more interesting. <laughs> I doubt it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, hopefully, hopefully for the next show, uh, I've been going back and forth with her. I might have an interview with her. Her name is Stephanie Evans. She goes by Steph Ez, and she has a show called The Stimulus, 
where she it's a you know it's a YouTube weekly show all about science and so forth. She she is an you know astrophysicist, uh, you know a rocket engineer sort of thing, but she has a lot of fun with it. She tries to make sure that it's something easy for everybody to understand. Like us, she has no problems in making fun of herself and acting goofy and making mistakes and having fun with it, all that good stuff. So uh, hopefully I'll be able to have an interview with her next week. She's she just sent me a message on Twitter right before we started recording this, asking me if early next week is okay. So, but seeing as how she's in California, I don't expect you to have to try to chime in on this one. <laughs> yeah, that'll be a bit. Light. It's only about an eight-hour difference for you. Yeah, light or early, yeah. depending which way you look at it. Not only that, we should be receiving some content from a friend of the show who attended a special gaming event not too long ago. He kindly did a few interviews and things with the organisers, and it's an exclusive for us. So um, that'll be interesting for you as well, John, I think, because of your your gaming background. <laughs> Just a little bit. Oh, you know... That could get me press credentials for next packs. Ooh. Ooh, dude. <laughs> <That'll> Ooh. Get... <laughs> <laughs> Actually, it might be kind of difficult. To... Well, the show's mostly about science and science fiction. Well, you know, you could try. So I'm going to PAX East regardless. I mean, we do advertise the fact uh, on our literature that um, gaming is in the whole thing, the whole spectrum yeah. of what we do, science fiction, science facts, technology, gaming, comic books uh pretty much you name it we cover it <laughs> yeah and, and my wife already told me because i didn't go to pax east this year just because we've been dumping so much money into the house and all that i was like you know what i'm just gonna take a, a year off take a break it's gonna kill me and so that's friday saturday and sunday and by saturday afternoon she just looked at me and said john i don't care what it costs next year go <laughs> I was miserable. <laughs> so I'm going next year, faux show. <laughs> Good stuff. Right. I think we'll call it a day there. And um, everyone out there will speak to you again very, very soon. Yep. Toodles. Well, that about wraps it up for this episode of TGP Nominal. Be sure to visit www.tgpnominal.weebly.com for the show notes for this or any other episode of TGP Nominal. Just look for the relevant tab in the menu. Let us know what you think of the show. Send an email to garbagepod at virginmedia.com Because your input is our output. Or you can use the social media icons at the top of the website, which include Twitter and Facebook. If you would like to subscribe to any of our podcasts, you can do so via iTunes, the RSS feed, TuneIn and Stitcher On Demand Radio. Don't forget to review us and give us a five-star rating. You can also listen to rebroadcasts of our shows on the 1800 Online Network at www.1800online.weebly.com. If you like what we're doing here, then why not buy us a pint by clicking on the donate button on any of the podcast pages and don't forget to spread the word about us. Station, this is Houston ACR. Thank you. That concludes the event.